The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Welcome back to Cancelled Too Soon, the podcast where we talk about TV series that lasted only one season or less. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I don't have a cute nickname. And uh, this is actually a very special episode. It's a little bonus episode all about everybody's favorite network, Quibi. And here to talk to talk with me about Quibi because uh, my usual co-host, Mr. William Bibiani, wasn't able to consume enough quibbies in time. I don't understand how. They're quick bites. You can eat them fast. Uh, but we have another special guest, uh, B. Peterson. Introduce yourself. Hi, um, my name is B. Peterson. Um, I have co-hosted one previous episode of Your Critically Acclaimed, which is all about queer cinema. And when I heard that you guys were doing an episode on Quibi, I was like, Hmm, I've seen a lot of those shows. I wonder if maybe because William seemed to not have much time with the service that they could use a guest host. And it turns out that, yes, in fact, they could. And (laughs) I'm just very glad to have the opportunity to be here. I am also, I think, technically a film critic now. I I write reviews um, on a site called Movie Babble. But anyway... Um, yeah, I am a I am a fellow defender of Quibi. I spent a lot of time watching Quibi, and now I'm ready to talk more about Quibi. Yeah. Um. Very very briefly, uh, Quibi is uh, 2020 to 2020 uh, was a, a just to to keep, catch people up in case they hadn't heard all of the big news. Uh, it was a streaming service that was intended for telephones only. It wasn't meant to go to TVs or or uh, I think even laptops. Uh, founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg. And Jeffrey Katzenberg's idea was, why not have movies cut up into little portions that you can enjoy while you're, uh, say, waiting in line or on a bus? Uh, No doubt Jeffrey Katzenberg noticed that a lot of people were just sort of consuming a lot of media on their phones, and it was usually, like, dog videos or YouTube videos. And I think the thinking was... Why not just put A content, like A-level, big-budget content, in that little area where people are already watching their dog videos? So, hence Quibi was born. A bunch of 7- to 10-minute videos. Usually, Sometimes they were movies cut up into portions. Sometimes they were uh, TV episodes that were only 10 minutes long. Sometimes they were 30- to 1-hour TV episodes cut up into pieces. And, uh... It was uh, it was launched in uh, April of this year, and it cl- and it closed. <laughs> it's going to close down on the first of December of this year because it was one of the most failinest things of all time. It lost about two billion dollars in that span, uh, but it was actually a really fascinating way to consume media. 
and I think uh, it's definitely worth talking about. I laughed at it when it first came out. Uh, B. Peterson, what was your reaction when you first heard about Quibi? Did it seem interesting, or did you chuckle along with everybody else? I first saw it, the first time I noticed Quibi was that it um, had a very large marketing budget, and I would just see ads for it everywhere on YouTube and the like, and I was just like, I'm not sure what this is, and eventually I found out, and I was like, that's interesting. I hate the vertical aspect ratio, so I was a little thrown off, and that's probably why I didn't, I never really got into it initially. Um, I was, in fact, what intrigued me to, first intrigued me about the service was um, when you talked about on one of your episodes of Critically Acclaimed about the show Wireless and how it's, we'll get to it, but it's unique use of the platform. And I was like, oh, that actually sounds interesting. And then when it finally announced its shutdown, I was like, oh, all of these are going to go away now. And they're who knows where they'll be so i for posterity's sake i gotta get on this and so i binge watched a ton of quibi shows and kind of did a 180 and from apathy to genuine interest and 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 sadness about the 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 demise of this of this streaming platform yeah yeah and and um unfortunately we don't know the future of Quibi's content. Uh, I know that a lot of the shows that they made were subcontracted through other studios. Some of them were made through Paramount. We might get home videos or other streaming releases of these things, but as of this conversation, we don't know. Uh, it's going to shut down on the 1st of December, and as far as we know, all Quibi content will just be gone. So we're here to talk about the Quibbies. Uh, first, I think you and I will talk about all of the Quibbies that you and I mutually watched. And then we can also talk about some other things that we caught up uh, with as individuals, because you and I might be some of the only voracious Quibi consumers in the world. So this is something uh, really important that we need to lay down for the sake of history. Yeah, yeah. for posterity's uh, sake. Yeah. Uh, so I think, and so yeah, this is going to be like just sort of an all-in episode where we're going to be talking about all of the Quibbies. Uh, I, I had a cute idea at one point where we could do one 10 minute episode per quibby but i think that's a little too precious so uh, <laughs> yeah so i i think uh, i think we'll just go by we'll just get them all in one one gigantic hunk uh completely antithetical to what quibby was all about uh but yep. i know that uh, one of the big launch titles with quibby and i guess we can start here was uh most dangerous game which was uh written by nick santora it was directed by phil abraham and it is the 20th film adaptation of the short story from the 1920s. Uh, it stars Liam Hemsworth as the hunted. He is a fellow who he's an architect because uh, all architects look like Liam Hemsworth and he has been diagnosed with cancer. He knows that it's terminal and he has a wife and a child on the way. His wife is played by Sarah Gaydon and he is approached by Christoph Waltz, who says, we're going to hunt you. But rather than hunting him in uh, on a remote island, which is where uh, the most dangerous game takes place, he the bounds are now just the city of Detroit. And he doesn't know who the hunters are when he's let out into the city. If I just had some cash, I'd get some treatment. Maybe see my son be more. Think you can help me somehow? I do, but I can't do it alone. I make possible man's innate desire to be challenged in a highly intense sport, hunting. 
You'd want them to hunt me? Like paintball? Like tag or something? A sport in its purest form. A hunt to kill. Uh, B, what did you think of Most Dangerous Game? Um, um, I, I think the, the, the best way, I recently rewatched Amadeus, and there's a line in there that just got a real chuckle out of me when Amadeus and Salieri are talking about a composer that they both know, and, and Amadeus is complaining that it's, that this composer is, is just pure mediocrity, and Salieri says, ah, he has yet to achieve mediocrity, and I think that's where about I sit on Most Dangerous Game. It's approaching competence. It is, it is, it is, it is watchable with with as long as as it is it is fine it is that it is about the most <laughs> lukewarm i feel on any of the shows on that i saw on quibi in that to say that waltz of course is doing his his big waltz shtick that he's known for at this point he's he's engaging to watch and everything else is just kind of white bread that you just kind of wolf down and I managed to watch most of it in one sitting, so it was it was perfectly watchable. But I was I was never surprised, and yeah, yeah I think th- that's about where I where I am on most dangerous game. It was the hardest one that I I it was I found it to be the hardest one to speak on, just because it's it's just kind of is. Mm. Well, which... here, here... no, Go continue. Uh, okay, um, what what I've noticed about most dangerous game and what with the Quibi format, this idea of watching movies in sort of little chunks with tiny little intermissions every ten minutes or so is, I think that's really conducive to enjoying schlock. Uh, you know, if if you think back to old film serials, which is kind of what Quibi is drawing on. You know, TV takes its model from old cinematic uh, serials. Uh, when you get your thrills in little tiny pieces and every 10 minutes or so you get a little like mini cliffhanger, it's easier to accept the contrivance as a cheap uh, plot device, a cheap way to wring tension out of something that is really rather usual. Uh, as such, I, I think if I was to watching Most Dangerous Game in a theater, I would see how contrived and dumb it was. I wouldn't want to see this all strung together in a single feature. But because I'm consuming it on Quibi, I'm, I found my, myself being a lot more forgiving of a lot of the contrivances and a lot of the uh, cheaper moments. So I think it was, even though as a whole it's not entirely creative, uh, like you said, Christoph Waltz is doing a really good performance. I think uh, more than anything, it's t- taking good advantage of this format. This might have been a good one to launch with because of that. Uh, they understood that they need to sell little pieces of a movie rather than a whole story. And I think this works when it's presented in pieces. I don't know. Do, do you think I'm off base? No, I th- I think you're right. I think that 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 is probably maybe one of the the most surprisingly strong aspects of the service is that even the worst films or shows that were on there, um, they every episode was only six or six to ten minutes, so that I could it, it would only be painful for that long, and then I could just if I wanted to move on to something else. 
So yeah, something like this, it was it was easily consumable. I don't really have any issues with it, other than to say that it is yes, schlocky and and predictable. But yeah, um, yeah, Liam's Hemsworth was fine. Um, I mildly enjoyed um, the the naming. I was actually okay. I actually have one very large issue with it is that they have each of the the mystery assassins have a code name and it's a president. There is yeah. Reagan and Kennedy and LBJ and Carter and um and one other one that I'm and Nixon but Nixon, there's yeah, no there's... they skip over Ford and it is the most annoying thing to me <laughs> that they skipped over Gerald R Ford and I was waiting for Gerald R Ford to show up and he never did they just apparently he wasn't important enough memorable enough so to put him in and I was just that was a that was a real letdown I must say uh, and I was, I was, uh, when they said that the assassins were all named after presidents, first of all, that's, I think that's more clearly a reference to Point Break than it is to anything mm-hmm. else. Uh, yeah. Because it's specifically LBJ, uh, Nixon and Reagan, you know, showed up as rubber masks all the time. Yeah. So I was looking for some kind of political allegory, like these assassins and the way they behave are somehow... Uh, connecting to the actual presidential administrations. Am I, no, this film doesn't have anything no. like that. And it doesn't on its matter mind. that it's set in Detroit. It's just Detroit, which it would have been interesting. I mean, they do try and touch on um, an aspect of of Detroit when they decide to bring in um, to about maybe two thirds of the way through um, this. Uh, they bring in William Hemsworth encounters a gang of of hoods. As as the show might have you believe or whatever, and it's mm-hmm. just and it was I found it to be it was sub, not unfortunately the but the first of many similar uh, uh, drug gangs of color that would appear throughout shows in Quibi, um, but yeah there 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 was definitely there definitely could have been a lot of political political aspects commentary in this show, but it just it it goes for the much more uh, bland. Uh, guy on the run shtick which hey i don't have an issue with it so there it is yeah yeah well uh speaking of guys on the run do you want to talk about the fugitive sure dad why are the police after you i want to fix everything i just need to figure out what's going on i've been set up mike what are you gonna do i'm going after who did it mike Kerr is our one and only suspect in this morning bombing he is currently at large and armed. We cannot assume that this will be the only attack. And if encountered, he's to be shot on sight. We're going to take him down. Yeah, the All fugitive. Right. Um, yeah, they rebooted The Fugitive. Uh, the 1963 TV series is back. Uh, it was, And it's directed in a you know, feature-ish form by Stephen Hopkins, who uh, did... Uh, Look, to me, I'll always know him as the director of A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five, uh, but uh, he, you know, he's a, a well, uh, a, a well practiced and uh, very experienced Hollywood director. Uh, his last film was Race, the Jesse Owens story. Uh, he did, uh, he, he produced and directed uh, the Lost in Space movie from the the nineties. However, you feel about that movie, uh, he's yeah a. a an experienced director has done a lot of TV and a lot of movies, and here he brings a, a good kind of machine-like efficiency, this kind of meat and potatoes feeling to the Fugitive. Now, 
the original premise of The Fugitive was about a doctor who was framed for killing his wife. And uh, he was innocent, but the cops on his tail didn't care, and he had to stay on the run. This one is a lot more like Die Hard with a Vengeance, in that there's bombings going on around Los Angeles, and the suspect has to run around trying to stop the bombings as they're occurring while the cops are on his tail. Uh, yeah. Which is not the premise of The Fugitive. That feels a lot more like an episode of 24, and I'm not just saying that because Kiefer Sutherland plays the cop. Uh, although he's essentially playing Jack Bauer. Uh, in in 24, uh, Jack Bauer worked for the counter-terrorist unit. It was CTU. In this one, what is it? It's like CTD? Like, it's it's so Counter- close to yeah, 24. Yeah, it's, it's essentially the same thing. <clears throat> mm. And, it, it, and so, yeah, the he, show is just about as forgiving of of cops as 20, something like 24 is. Yeah, this, this is uh, very much a cops are good guys kind of show. Uh, the cops are just sort of wrong. The uh, the real villains are the journalists, and there's mm-hmm. a whole sub- yeah. This movie sub- hates about, journalists. Yeah, the the whole subplot about um, uh, Tia Sirkar plays a, a journalist who is really trying to sh- prove herself to her bosses and is doing some ethically dodgy things in order to get the story. Uh, and as it turns out, she was the one who. Uh, was wrong this entire time and was like sending out the wrong message about this innocent good guy that was just trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And to the point where uh, the the final scene is um, at the at the very end after all the air has been cleared that that um, that the the, the 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 fugitive the innocent man goes back to the reporter and says, "Look." I could destroy you, but I'm going to be nice. And that's supposed to be this mm-hmm. this heroic send-off of, ah, yes, now everything is right with the world, that the journalist is shamed, and we can go back to our normal our normal lives. Yeah, yeah no, they, The Fugitive, uh... I found... I found it similarly to be very efficient and effective. That's... It's... it. You can tell that there is a... There is a Hollywood sheen on this film, despite it being only on the, on a screen the size of your phone, and... And it it works. You the characters. It's easy enough to invest in them, and you you just it it keeps you it keeps you on your toes. You it, as just like the characters are, and yeah, no, I I enjoyed it. Uh, other than the other than the uh, another example of a, of a generic drug gang, um, and the mm. and the reporter the reporter through line. I found it to be to be reasonably enjoyable. Um, the characters made good decisions for the most part. Um, there is a bit more uh, political commentary. I mean, it's just more of motivation that that uh, this is a post 9-11 film and that is rather explicit as Kiefer Sutherland's wife was, uh, uh, I believe, a police officer who had died in 9-11. And there's a line where it's like, well, uh, s- sir, as since your wife died in a terrorist attack, uh, 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 how how emotionally invested are you? Are you sure you should be doing this? Aren't you too emotionally invested? I am the right amount of emotionally invested in this case. And that is 110%. And it's the big, the big (laughs) line. And, and Uh yeah, no, it's, 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 it's decent. I, I, it was, it was perfectly watchable and the characters are fun. The, I can't remember the woman who plays, um, the wife of the fugitive. Um, she has some fun scenes in an interrogation room. 
Her name is uh, Natalie Martinez. Boyd Holbrook plays the the fugitive. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, no, uh, she she was fun when she's basically just berating these these investigators like, "Come on, how you 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 stupid people." And that was just and as soon as as soon mm-hmm. as he's cleared, then she just gets on the phone and just takes complete control and it was that was that was fun to watch. Um yeah. the the young girl is good. Um Yeah. Uh uh, like I said, if if this is another case, like if I were watching something like this with this kind of a breakneck pace where they're constantly dropping big plot points at you and then there's another bombing all of a sudden, if I were seeing something like this uh, on a movie screen, it would be too much. I think it would be too much information. But yeah, I think uh, this is the kind of thing that also is really good for for Quibi to have it in these like little pieces so you can have big climaxes constantly and still sort of enjoy it. Uh, let me ask you this. Did you watch these movies holding your phone, like, sideways in the landscape aspect ratio, or, or did you hold your phone upright? Because I was that, about that... to ask you the exact same question, because this, okay. is, a, <laughs> this is a film that, yeah, I think I, I started out um, switching regularly between the two um, just to, like, get a feel for how each of them, and I would, like, rewatch scenes. Uh, so that I could see him in both aspect ratios. And I found myself, well, preferring the horizontal. Um, and specifically with this one, just because there, there is, it's a lot of action and running around. And I found that the, when you, you when I put it into, into portrait mode, into, into a shoebox, I think is maybe how they call it, mm-hmm. that it was a <laughs> bit too, a bit too, fren- a bit too fren- frenetic with some of the shaky cam. And it was just kind of like, ah, this is, it feels like I'm just watching unedited cell phone footage, and and whereas in landscape I was able to get a bit more of the geography of scenes, and so I yeah. ended up watching most of these most of these films or shows um, in in the horizontal aspect ratio, um, with some notable exceptions, which we'll get to. But yeah, I, I felt like this one definitely benefited from the horizontal, okay. um, just because of just because of how like when you had stuff like big explosions that. You, it, the the effect was more it was better more better felt while in while in landscape and you could see okay. everything that was happening around Boyd Holbrook's character yeah, uh, yeah. as it just yeah when it, when you're all boxed in it, that works for a sense of claustrophobia but when you're trying to get an expansive view of things I think the the form the aspect ratio can be can be limiting yeah I I watched. Uh, Every uh, every except for wireless, I watched every Quibi show pretty strictly in the upright format, just because that was uh, a that was one of their like one of their selling points. You can watch it in either aspect ratio, mm-hmm. and I also wanted to see how that worked aesthetically. I've never watched a film uh, completely in that upright ratio, so it was uh, e- even though there was a lot of shaky cam and there were things where two characters were standing maybe a little too far apart to fit on the upright screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still interested to see how that worked. And I think as, you know, as a storytelling device, that kind of aspect ratio works better for some of their horror stuff than it does for their action stuff. That is, that is exactly what I would agree with. Yeah. yeah. Because it, you do get that claustrophobic feeling. There's actually uh, you know wide shots, which are actually, a little of information at the bottom of the screen and the top of the screen is just this big empty blackness, uh, which is, you know, adds to the sense of isolation. I'm also curious, and I'd love to talk to any of these filmmakers about how they filmed it, uh, how they were able to 
if, if they knew it was going to be going on phones or if somebody else was doing the cropping after the fact. Uh, yeah. Because if it, 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 it would be hard to shoot for two aspect ratios simultaneously. Yeah. Um, I noticed that when I was switching back and forth that the really, for a vast majority of the shows, the only difference in whether you were watching it horizontally, vertically, as to the choice of shots was specifically for coverage. Like in vertical aspect in the vertical aspect ratio they would choose a different angle that would better better frame the subjects as opposed to in the horizontal and the landscape that there were a lot more two shots for example but other Mm. than that there wasn't much difference into the specific shots that were shown on screen and yes that that's that is very interesting though i'm wondering if if they just did a ton of coverage for every scene and then let the editors do most of the work or if they had specific they had specific like storyboards for what it would look like horizontally and what it would look like vertically yeah yeah um well speaking of horror you you got to see some of the their horror stuff what uh, what did you want to talk about next um i i actually i let's why don't we talk about um Ma- why don't we talk about mary heron's the expecting Hello, Emma. I'm Dr. Green. How are you feeling today? It's going to be okay. Everything looks just fine. In fact, baby's growing very quickly. Oh, my God. I guess she knows who you are. I don't know. I just worry. My hair and the nosebleeds. I keep losing weight. And having these horrible nightmares. We'll see what's going on. Something isn't right. I can feel it. Easy, it's just me. Okay. Uh, Mary I really like this one. I, I did too. Um, and and. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the thrillers uh, I noticed were directed by women, or at least a couple of the ones that I saw. Um, the Expecting, directed by Mary Heron, uh, stars Anna Sophia Robb as a young woman who wakes up in the woods, uh, in the nude, and doesn't remember what happened to her. And we, when she goes back to her life, we learn that she doesn't have that rosy a life. She works a job like a really low-paying job that she doesn't like. Her mother's out of the picture uh, because she was committed a long time ago, we'll eventually learn. Uh, Her father is not kind to her. She doesn't really talk to him anymore. And she learns that she's pregnant. And a lot of this story is actually about how she needs to prepare for having a child. Uh, In fact, it it could be seen almost as this uh, kitchen sink working class drama for a, a lot of it, where she's just sort of uh, preparing for the idea of having a child and going to uh, Rory Culkin, who plays the child's father, and how they have to figure out what a family of of them might look like. Uh, but of course, this is called The Expecting. Everything's really dark and scary. We know she's pregnant with a demon baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she woke up with scratches all over her body, and she keeps having nightmares about some strange thing attacking her. So, was mm. was is Rory Corkin actually the father? And if he is, what exactly is he? Yeah. Um. 
if if you've if you've seen Rosemary's Baby, you've seen The Expecting. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of what goes on in this film is it's sort of like yeah, like blue collar Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby is about an upper class family. Uh, in fact, most of the demon baby movies you've seen tend to be about wealthy people, and the idea is it doesn't matter if you're rich and uh, well uh, insulated by your money, you're still going to be you know, victim of the forces of ultimate evil. Uh, I do like that this is a little bit more uh, cognizant of the character's class and what it means when somebody who claims that they're pregnant with a demon baby, uh, when they're really, really poor, what that means to the people who might or might not be listening to her. Yeah, and and there's and a lot of this a lot of this film is just ex, um, exploring the the well, frankly, the dangers of what if you are don't have the means to if you say don't want a child and but you don't have the means for um, an abortion, the 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 ways that you have to go about getting one and the dangers there and. It reminded mm-hmm. there was a lot of uh, moments in this where it just reminded me of one of the best films of this year, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, and that there's just this just this this tension, this fear of like what 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 can I do? I have no means and yet I'm I am stuck in this impossible situation. And here it's of course heightened to the point of 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 horror. And I think that there are some really, really great moments, um, especially one that takes place in a in a uh, off the grid um, ab- ab- abortion clinic. That is just there are some there are s- certain moments that just kind of that have really stuck with me. And like that's a, that's a great little piece of 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 not showing the thing that really really scares you. And yeah, there's there's a lot of great stuff in here. Mary Heron is yeah. yet again giving us a, a a strong piece of of subversive um ambiguous horror filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I I I like that uh, off the grid abortion clinic scene as well. It reminded me a lot of uh weirdly the eyeball replacement scene in minority Minority report Report. yeah that i did get vibes of that yeah we're like we're gonna go to like the filthiest room imaginable to do this medical procedure it it seemed that scene seemed a little a little corny to me like it's effective but that's like when we're going into full tilt horror territory which is fine it's a horror movie but uh, before that i felt like uh the expecting was relatively nuanced. I think Anna Sophia Robb uh, gives a really great performance as somebody who's really at the ed- end of her rope, but has the wherewithal to like keep going to a job she hates mm-hmm. and how she has to deal with all of this while still dealing with all of the ordinary crap that she would have to deal with otherwise. Uh, but yeah, once, once she goes to like the abortion clinic and once it's revealed like who the masterminds, uh, or villains of the piece actually are. It, 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 it's a little silly, but uh, it, it doesn't need to be so high concept. I think it's it's effective up to that point. Yeah, yeah, but, but I it it does unfortunately devolve into the into into this into an into a climax. The final moment I thought was just kind of a little a little a little a little silly. That it was just like, oh, I, I, I see that you were going for something scary there, but I don't think that's really mm-hmm. what came across. But, 
But yeah, other than, yeah. Other than that, just Anna Sophia Robb, I think gives one of the better performances of any of of any film that that we're to discuss today. She's she is really really great, and mm-hmm. and and Rory Culkin is just great at playing weird, unnerving characters. Just I think all the Culkins <laughs> are. <laughs> That's it. That that's their weird niche. Uh, I wonder why. Uh, oh, and, and Mira Servino is in it as well. She's the yes. uh, the obstetrician who looks after Anna Sophia Rob. Uh, and good to see Mira Servino again. I like seeing her in anything. Uh, yeah, I, I I dug the expecting it. It wasn't as quite high concept. I admit that I had the ending ruined for me by of all things a gif. Oh, I remember oh, yeah. so, somebody was talking about uh, the expecting on Quibi on Twitter, and they put up a GIF of what is essentially the last shot of the movie, uh, as as just a little GIF that you could look up in the the GIF library on Twitter. It's like, well, yep. now I know how this is going to end. There's not like a big climax after that. So uh, the this kind of silly image right at the end, it was a little bit of a letdown. I'm mean, like it. It's communicated to me. I get it. I get this this ending that you're going for, but yeah, it looks kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it just it's it's in the vein of of Do you remember Bird Box, the Sandra Bullock uh, Netflix film that became the most popular thing in the world for a hot second and it was really weird as to why. Um, but that was a film that didn't show the monsters and later it came out what they were going to look like. And it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really glad they didn't show that because that would have been ridiculous. And <laughs> and unfortunately, they did show they d- they did show it here, and it's just like, oh, oh, okay, I, I guess that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, I I thought the point of Bird Box was that there weren't monsters; that everyone was just convinced that they were there. Yeah, and. Yeah, but orig- but they had they had stuff they had designs and they had they had, they had concept designs and they put them out there as like if there if we had put the monsters in this is what they would have looked like and everyone was like oh yes you made the right decision. So. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the expecting would have been a lot stronger if they had something a little bit more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It's like here here's the big reveal of some sort of unnerving evil. But maybe it's not. I think that would have been a little bit more... Would have driven the point home a little bit better. Yeah, because it, it tries throughout a lot of it to be that her mother was committed. And so maybe maybe she, Anna Sophia Robb, is experiencing the same thing as her mother. And she's going down the same path. And it's just and it's a hereditary, hereditary thing. But then at the end, it's like, no, there is an answer. And I, I feel that up until that point, it, 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 it was... That it, there was a there was a lot of great ideas, and I still think it does have it does address a a, a, a lot of of good things. Warning: there is a scene with some uh, uh, pretty pretty difficult to watch uh, harm of an animal. So just be warned that that, yeah, that does happen yeah. in in the show. And I was like, oh, yep, I'm not showing that to my sister. Oof. Um, what what other horror films? Oh, we also watched uh, you and I, The Stranger, the which Stranger. has. Which has nothing to do with the Camus book. I am Claire, your orbit driver. I am Carly, your passenger. Are you famous? Why would you think that? You live in a mansion. Actually, I have no idea who lives there. What do you mean? 45 minutes ago, I rang the bell. 
When the woman that lives there opened the door, I shot her in the face. You are sitting next to a sociopath. So here's the deal. If you tell me a really good story, then I will let you live. Oh, yeah, um, what a disappointment. I was really going into it thinking, ah, yes, what we need is some is some discussions of Sisyphus. <laughs> well, what I, I don't... I've never seen uh, any film versions of Camus' The Stranger. I would love to see that. That, Like, we're going to do something really kind of arch and arty and nihilistic on Quibi. Uh, no, they never actually reached that plane. The Stranger is just sort of a straightforward thriller. Uh, it was put together by Venus Sud, a Canadian director who previously has done films like The Salton Sea and... Uh, most recently, The Lie, which was one of the uh, Tales from the Blumhouse uh, movies. And uh, yeah, now The Stranger, uh, which stars uh, Micah Monroe, uh, who we all love from films like The Guest and uh, and It Follows. It Follows. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is being It Followed by Dane DeHaan, who is in... Who once again is completely miscast. Um, yeah, <laughs> Dane DeHaan is an incredibly talented actor. He is incredibly soulful. Uh, I've seen him in like little indie films where he just sort of drags a lot of pain out from his inner core, and yet you see him in movies like Spider Man and Valerian, and now here The Stranger, where he's asked to play these really kind of broad parts that he is just not well suited for. Uh, in this one, uh, Micah Monroe plays a recent transportee to L.A. Uh, she is driving Uber to make ends meet, and she picks up Dane DeHaan, and Dane DeHaan seems to know a lot about her and is really scary. And just minutes into their ride, he reveals that he's going to, that he's murdered the people at the house that he was picked up from, and that he's going to murder her next. And the rest of the the f- quibby is about how he's stalking her throughout the city in real time while uh, she tries to evade him and figure out figure out ways to contact the police, gain allies, and uh, figure out why he's stalking her. Um, they're going for something here. I don't think they quite hit it, though. What do you think? I, I, I think that they, they, they didn't quite hit it. I think that... But... I think I really enjoyed the stranger. I think this, this was one of, this was, this was one of the better, one of the better films that I saw. And I think a lot of that owes to Venus Sud's direction. I found mm-hmm. that on the whole, most of the Quibi films, they, they didn't really form distinctive visual experiences. And I don't know if, if that was because of the directors or because of the format, the medium, but I found that a lot of the time, the 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 cinematography was kind of the the visual the visual aspect of it was kind of incidental but that was not the case here uh Venus Sud is makes for a really gorgeous cr- uh crummy portrait of the underbelly of LA and she does so with these very long smooth steady cam shots that just kind of well they they follow Micah Monroe around and mm-hmm. it just it creates this this real sense I've, of tension throughout the thing, and I think that that, that th- I think that the film, if it had been shot and edited in a more conventional manner, that it probably would have lost a lot of its a lot of its uh, uh, inve- engagement uh, from me, and that yeah, I really I really enjoyed how 
the 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 framing was very deliberate in this film and and both vertically and horizontally um and that that was that was definitely a strong point with the stranger it but it definitely also has a lot to say and i'm curious why you think that it missed it so what 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 was your issue with the stranger well, uh, we learn uh, eventually, it, it ended up feeling a lot like a scare film to me by the end, uh, because mm-hmm. we we learn in the course of The Stranger that uh, the Michael Monroe character uh, had something in her past, that she had a, a previous uh, incident similar with a incident. teacher, yeah, a similar incident with uh, something that happened with a teacher of hers back in her hometown. And that was kind of why she had to leave town. And so she always, she's always had this sort of cloud of shame hanging over her, uh, whether or not it was, uh, rightfully acquired shame or, uh, thrust upon her. Yeah. Whether or not, or it was something that, yeah, was like inflicted upon her. I'm not going to say, but, uh, the idea is that she, because she has this kind of blotch on her permanent record, as it were, uh, that's something that will never, ever go away in the modern age of technology. This uh, this idea that no matter what you do, there's always going to be a, a trail online and people will be able to find it. And this feels like a scare tactic from like a decade ago. Like, oh no, the phones are so scary and they'll, they'll, you'll never be able to live anything down and the fact that we're really vilifying online evidence seems really like a dated concept to me, and it doesn't warrant the kind of moral outrage of a slasher movie killer the way the film uh, presents it. Yeah, I would agree that 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 aspect of it is definitely the weakest. I think the thing with me is that since that all of that that messaging and all of it's rather explicitly stated it's and it's rather explicitly stated specifically by Dane DeHaan's character and since he was since he was miscast and it was felt a little out of place I found myself just kind of almost like blocking all of that out just because there's Dane DeHaan yes he's there but I really found myself more interested with um, and maybe it's because I'm not from LA but just the way that the city was portrayed and i think that in the way that it's just kind of the 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 apathy that just kind of seethes throughout the throughout the throughout this one night and just how people are people are killed and and people are mm. are injured and it just and and it just kind of you just kind of it kind of sucks and you have to deal with it because no one really cares here and i i felt that that um, a lot of that was conveyed really well uh, through the character who is the 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 third Bill in in, in this film or show is um, the character of I think his name is is JJ or DJ um, JJ yeah JJ yeah Avon Jogia is the actor's and name and he is great and I want to see him in everything um, he was <laughs> I think the best part of of this of this of this piece and just his character it. Uh, uh, what they do with his character ultimately I found to be a tad annoying um, a, l- a little bit of a cheap shot um, in what with what happens uh, to him ultimately but I still felt that while he was on screen that he was he was the best part um, I mean and it there is um, we'll get to this 
much later in the show, I think, but there is there is uh, an aspect of timeliness to there is a literal I can't breathe moment in this show that I was just like, oh, yep, that's there, and I think Avon um, hmm. Jojia really he he pulls it off, and he's he's I think he was he was the, he was the the standout from this, and I I I, I would I. If if this were available for people to see, I think people might uh, catch on to to what this guy's putting out, and I I, I think he, it mm. it it would be a missed opportunity if he didn't become more of a more of a name. Yeah, well, the the stranger was co-produced by ABC, so it's entirely possible that this is going to show up on Hulu at some point. But uh, yeah. again, we we don't know where these things are going to be scattered to. I mean, um, I'm 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 a strong advocate. I've been I've been uh, uh, petitioning that uh, this need all the Quibi films and shows need to be put out on a Criterion box set. Uh, <laughs> sort of maybe <laughs> maybe an Eclipse box set. Some of the better ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, because this this was a really fascinating tech experiment. This whole Quibi. Um, yeah, but I agree with you about Avon Jojia, uh, jo- uh, and I think. I don't like sort of the aspect, though, that uh, this this scared girl gets to have essentially people sacrificed to her. I know that's sort of the premise of the yeah, show. Yeah, that, 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 that was the bad, issue that I had. Bad guy is killing people around her. But, yeah, it seems like this is another, uh, an, another show where a lot of strangers show up to help this poor, beleaguered white girl, and they all die to facilitate her... It's not even a redemption. It's just sort of her survival, finding peace. Yeah, finding peace with herself and her own survival. And it seemed a little, a little lopsided. If she's going to accumulate helpers, they should be, you know, equal partners in this. They should all be able to uh, uh, come down on this guy who clearly has a really shaky mo and a really dumb superpower, which is being able to track <laughs> somebody with their phone. Uh, so yeah, the the strange. I liked what off. you said about the stranger, but there was a lot off, a lot that I didn't uh, didn't really like about the stranger. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, I'll say one more thing is that um, this was originally supposed to be a twelve hour miniseries. Uh, the film takes place over twelve hours, and each it's twelve chapters, and each one is one hour. And this was supposed to be a twelve hour miniseries where the whole thing was supposed to take place in real time. And mm-hmm. I think that was a, ba- a lot of the basis for uh, the visual style where it's a lot of long shots that are smooth and basically just follow the character. And I actually think that it, it might have been better served if it had been in that format as opposed to this very quick, um, quick more quickly paced. I think it would have been – I think I think that might have been – just because there are some things that happen throughout the show that are like – quite quickly glossed over and I think it would have been nice if we had a bit more time to sit in certain moments but I I, I yeah. now now reflecting on it I do see a lot of your criticisms of of the show and I guess I just I was just rose-colored glasses like yes I like this Avon Jojia guy I really like this and I like that I'm my eyes are actually engaged in what I'm looking at and so I think that yeah. I think it, it definitely has has some merit while it's it's its messages might be a tad mixed towards and a bit cliche towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess we saw one other thriller and I've talked about this one on, uh, on uh, critically acclaimed before, because I, I see a lot of these Quibi shows uh, as movies, even though you look them up on IMDb, uh, they're defined as TV series. 
Uh, Quibi sold them as TV series, and indeed a couple of them won Emmys and not Oscars. Uh, But I've been reviewing some of them as they come along as films. Uh, So I already talked about Wireless. You can't tell mom what I'm about to tell you. I crashed my car, man. Really? I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere. Come pick me up. I will be there. Would you please talk to me for one minute? Why haven't you left yet, man? 45 minutes away, okay? I will freeze to death if you don't come pick me up. Andy, where are you? Watching this right now means that I never made it out of here. This is maybe my favorite Quibi. Uh, yeah. This one was produced by Steven Soderbergh, and Steven Soderbergh has always been really interested in film tech. Uh, he was one of the first filmmakers to really uh, wholeheartedly adopt digital photography, and he made it look really interesting rather than just getting a consumer-grade camera and shooting something that looks really raw and cheap. Uh, he was really interested in uh, interesting distribution. Steven Soderbergh's film Bubble is still one of the first, uh, I think it was the first film to be released in theaters uh, on, like, streaming platforms and on home video simultaneously, all on the same day, uh, which broke a lot of molds at the time. I don't know uh, if anybody knows anything about the movie Bubble. It didn't really cause a stir, but that's something Steven Soderbergh was interested in. He wants to sort of use tech to get film out there. He's not so concerned about the the fineries and the vagaries of distribution rules when it comes to like academy standards uh so if he's going to put out something on quibi you know it's going to be interesting uh this one was directed by zach wechter and jack seidman it stars ty sheridan and uh, as i've described before this one has shifting aspect ratios in that if you watch the the film in landscape, if you're holding your phone sideways, you get to see Ty Sheridan in his truck as he's experiencing the drama, uh, making telephone calls, and uh, through those telephone calls, we get to learn more and more about the situation he's in and kind of what a bad guy he is. But if you hold your phone upright, you can see whatever is on his phone at that moment, uh, which means you can see just sorry, you cut you know, out there. Oh, sorry. Uh, when you hold your phone, his phone upright. Uh, you can see whatever's on his phone at that moment, and so you can see his, you know, music selection if he's not doing anything, or if he's making a video call, you see some actual video footage in that upright aspect ratio. Uh, and the film is about how he crashes his truck in the snow, he's slowly freezing to death, and he has to get his drunken friends who are at a New Year's Eve party to come help him, or anybody else to come help him, and also stay out of trouble with his mom, because he's only 17 and he's really concerned about getting in trouble uh yeah this was this is great this is perfect use of the technology it's a really interesting story and i love this playful gimmick that lets you switch back and forth because you actually get different bits of information depending on which screen you're watching yeah, no, this was this was out of all the films on Quibi, I think this was definitely the one that took the most advantage, the full the full advantage of the potential of the platform. And mm. and and it's only natural that that would come from Steven Soderbergh, the guy who was like, I'm going to make films only on an iPhone from now on. And um yeah, and I I think the 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 perfect uh, description of this film is uh lock meets searching meets buried. Um mm. 
in that even there's a gimmick on top of a gimmick in that almost the entirety of the film is just Ty Sheridan in a car making calls and and yeah I I think this film really worked Ty Sheridan is great um the various other performances are great um who who plays his mom it's is it Michelle Monaghan that plays his no, mom it's it's, uh, it's Andy McDowell oh that's right yeah 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 it's Andy McDowell and I was just like oh yeah oh and it's just for a phone call okay cool and uh, <laughs> yeah and the the sense of 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 physically metaphorically and literally just going deeper and deeper into this ho- into this hole of being buried in 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 his in his his fibs and his which eventually just become these full-blown lies and how he has to dig himself out through um through admitting his to his own his own flaws and his own struggles and i think ty sheridan sells it really really well and and yeah i just i i i found myself it was i think there was uh, a lot of of points where it was it was the film guided you pretty easily into when you definitely needed to flip your phone to look at a piece of information whether that was in horizontal or vertical but mm-hmm. yeah this was this was a this was an expertly directed expertly written an extra expertly performed film i i really have no issues with it um it has a a great sense of ratcheting tension especially towards the end and i you weren't you aren't sure which way it's gonna go and then it goes one way and you you're like yeah that works and mm-hmm. and yeah this was this was a real fun ride and this was this was the one i i saved it for last because i i knew the gimmick and i was like i'm i'm gonna save this one uh for my final thing before my trial runs out and <laughs> and i was glad that i saved it up for last because i because i went out on a high note and I'm, I'm i'm glad you got the trial yeah and i'm glad you got to see this one because yeah this this one was really great this was yeah the the reason to get quibi was something like this uh you know the stranger okay it's good uh you you can probably wait to see that one on abc uh, wireless is yeah like a Quibi only thing. Um, this one and I think uh, Home Movie: The Princess Bride were like the ones yeah. that really took advantage of the phone format the best. Uh, yeah, it's it's really kind of a pity. Um, I'm not sure how uh, like when you signed up for Quibi. I know when they s- decided they were going to shut down on December first. Unfortunately, that didn't mean everybody got to see it all the way until December first. It meant that whenever your billing cycle ended, you were just cut off. So yeah, even though I, I got it late October and then I got mm-hmm. an email like, Hey, um, once your free trial's up, we're not going to bill you. You're just not going to have access. And I was like, Oh, but I'm willing to pay the five bucks for one more month. And they're like, no, no. Yeah. Okay. And so I was like, Oh, I got to get on this. And so, yeah, that was, that was, that's unfortunate that, that yeah, it, yeah. it would just, they wouldn't even accept more money at that point. It's like, come on, more people are interested in your platform now than ever that it's shutting down. <laughs> yeah, it's like I I sent some emails too. It's like I know it's only a partial month. I'll pay the whole five dollars. Uh, I'm a professional critic. I could talk about your shows in in like a, a, a pub pub publicity capacity, but no, they they weren't having it. They said, nope, we're not going to extend any subscriptions. You're just out. We, we want to get out of this up. thing as quickly as possible. We we are dying, and we have accepted this fact. Yeah. 
But uh, I, I mentioned Home Movie The Princess Bride. Let's talk about Home Movie The Princess Bride. Yeah. Yes, um, yes, let us. The Home Movie The Princess Bride. So, it's down to you, and it is down to me. If you wish you're dead, by all means, keep moving forward. Let me explain. There's nothing to explain. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Perhaps an arrangement can be reached. There can be no arrangement in your killing her. If there can be no arrangement, then we are at an impasse. I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brains. Oh, that's smart. Have you heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. <laughs> um, this was a really neat idea. I, I felt that it was part, maybe partly inspired by the Sweding uh, trend that uh, Michel Gondry briefly tried to start with a movie like Be Kind Rewind. That is remaking a known feature film uh, as quickly as possible with literally no money whatsoever, like building things out of cardboard and trying to achieve really complicated scenes or special effects with uh, you know, forced perspective and just a lot of innovation. Uh, I'm guessing the title Home Movie The Princess Bride meant that they were going to do more of these. They're going to do, I don't know, Home Movie Ghostbusters next. Who's to say? But uh, the idea was uh, they launched Quibi right when lockdown was happening. Mm -hmm. They decided to have some original content get every famous person they could possibly wrangle to film individual scenes or sometimes just single lines of dialogue from the 1987 film The Princess Bride and edit them all together as if it's a whole feature film starring hundreds of people, uh, dozens of people usually in the same role. Uh, And all of these celebrities filmed in their houses. Some of them came up with their own costumes. Some were really elaborate costumes. Some weren't. Uh, And they uh, got, you know, the blessing of Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner's in it. Uh, And it, it's weirdly emotionally disarming. I feel like the earnestness of these people essentially just playing dress up, doesn't isn't necessarily the best way to tell the Princess Bride story. This is definitely made for people who are already really familiar with the Princess Bride, but it's a really really fun way to look at a movie and share a certain kind of passion for play. Yeah, no this this film um, this this I I named this as my favorite of all the Quibi films and. It's technically from director Jason Reitman, and it's uh, technically also from writer William Goldman because they don't say, ch- change a single line, to, line of dialogue um, throughout the oh, entire throughout the entire film, which is hilarious because there are not two one but two references to masks and how important they are. Um, like I think it's um, who ah, I'm trying to remember the specific performance. It's. Uh, uh, David Spade, I think, gets the line that says, um, um, I think everyone will be wearing masks someday. And I, that's just, and then you realize that that was in the actual film, and it's just like, ah, yes, that is perfect. Um, <laughs> but I, I really, really enjoyed this film to the point where I actually enjoy it quite a bit more than the original Princess Bride. And I do think that this format was the perfect way to do it. 
um, the Princess Bride has long been, at least as far as I've been familiar with it, one of been one of those films that like you could never remake the Princess Bride. It's too perfect. How could you dare mm-hmm. try and 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 reframe it or redo it? And I think that if you were gonna do something that is as as picture perfect as the P- Princess Bride, this is the perfect way. And because it allows not just one reinterpretation, but every dozens and dozens and dozens of reinterpretations of the material. And while I found the original Princess Bride, I think it's, I think it's good. I think that William Goldman's screenplay is too perfect, that everything fits so perfectly together that it's just that by the end of it, I'm just going like, huh, that was a bedtime story. And there's not really mm-hmm. much more to it there, but by putting it in this format with presented in this way, I, th- I found myself being a lot more engaged with the bedtime story aspect of it. Like these are people telling, telling a story through the means. I think that maybe this format is maybe more appropriate for a story like this, that, that these stories of princes and princesses and, and battles and sword fights, that that's something that you, that doesn't happen in real life. It happens in your head. And it's something that you do with make-believe and with Legos, which feature prominently Mm. in the home movie, the princess bride, that whenever there's like a big, uh, uh, action thing, or when they're climbing the giant, uh, uh, cliff face that it's just little Lego figurines and it's, and it's perfect. Like this is, this is how we play. Um, did yeah, you have yeah. you gotten to see um, any of the shorts on Netflix um, in the homemade series that came out earlier this year? No, no, I haven't. So that was a series of films from known directors, um, including uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal did a short, uh, Pablo Larraín did a short, Antonio Campos did a short, who also made The Devil. Um, uh, the devil all the time this year, but a lot of these, a bunch of directors made short films that were made while during, during lockdown. And, and there is one specific short that was one of my favorites called my rune and the unicorn. I don't remember the directors of it. It was a, I think a husband and wife pair. And the film was just a shot of their child that they essentially locked in, in, um, in the dad's office and the only all that she had was um, this unicorn, this this unicorn toy, and she tells this story. She just kind of makes up stream of consciousness this story of of the dolphins are attacking and all of this stuff is happening. And the film it's essentially <laughs> just one continuous shot, but they add um, some like uh, filters on it to make it look like it's a painting or a, like a rotoscope effect. And they add in sound effects, and what you what you're given is essentially pure childhood imagination, and it's mm-hmm. just it's riveting. You're, it's so visceral. Visceral. This little kid is is so into the story, and you can't help be as well. And I feel like that this film captures a lot of that same energy, where it's just a bunch yeah, of people yeah. telling a story together. And yes, there are 100 performances, and I ranked all of them in an article that I did <laughs> on home movie, the princess bride. It's so arbitrary and subjective to the point of stupidity, but I ha- it was, it was mm. so cathartic just doing that. 
Um, yeah, mm-hmm. Javier Bardem is amazing in this. Diego Luna is in this. Uh, Jack, it would be pointless to try and name all of them. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like even uh, dogs and and children get on the a- get in on the action and and what it's I think what the the coolest aspect of of the home movie The Princess Bride is that by opening up the casting to anyone suddenly the princess buttercup dynamic can now be played by david burtka neil patrick harris and suddenly it's a gay couple that were that we mm. that gets the big kiss or suddenly it's tiffany haddish in common and now it's and now it's a black uh, a black relationship and you suddenly you realize that there are that while the princess bride might be considered the ultimate fairy tale it is ultimately one perspective and I think what this film does so well is it opens up that these stories are for everyone and can be told by anyone and I, I think that's that's really why I yeah, connected yeah, with that, Home Movie The Princess Bride yeah that, that, that that's my favorite aspect too um, the, uh, everyone says that The Princess Bride is this perfect movie you can't touch it it can't be remade but you look at The Princess Bride it's if you go back and see the original it's a low budget film the music is all done on a synth. Uh, it, it looks a little bit cheap. Uh, cheaper than I think its imagination can contain. But it's being presented as a grandfather reading a story out of a book. It does have that dreamlike quality. And I think people simply retelling that story and uh, having fun with it and telling the story again to one another is uh, just over-accentuate... Not over accentuates, just accentuates that. It makes it... Uh, uh, the central part of it. This is the tale that we are going to tell. It's now been passed on, not just to the gr- from grandfather to grandson, but from William Goldman onto an entire generation of uh, new storytellers and movie stars. Uh, it's also just fun. It's fun yeah, to it's, you know, it's watch just all these. Really all enjoyable these, to watch. It's very you know, watching all, all of these stars kind of uh, have a wonderful time. Uh, reading dialogue usually that it, it seems like they're really really familiar with it uh i can see uh on the actors that are about my age like jason siegel does a really really good andre the giant impersonation you can tell that he practiced that in the mirror a lot uh and by the time we get to the end you know, at the beginning we have uh as uh rob reiner is the grandfather character towards the beginning played, the first grandfather it, is played by adam sandler just, That's just, right, Adam. So, but uh, yeah, they, great. they they switched the roles around a lot, and in one one segment, Rob Reiner is the grandfather, and I think in that scene, uh, Josh Gad might be the grandson. Uh, I'm no, trying no, to remember. Savage. There are so many; it it might as well be. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in one point, Rob Reiner plays the grandfather, and Fred Savage, one, even though he's an adult now, plays the grandson, uh, which is a joke they uh, repeated from uh, Deadpool Two. Once upon a Deadpool. I think yeah. is what the that iteration that cut of the film there were like five cuts of Deadpool two. Yeah, they they tried to do a, a PG thirteen cut and they called it Once Upon a Deadpool and they had see had Disney these, like, we can be family devices. friendly. Right, right, right. Because that's what we want. We want Deadpool to be family friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time we get to the end, and Rob Reiner is now the grandson. He's moved into the bed and he's reading the grandson dial- grandson's dialogue and the grandfather is played by Carl Reiner. Oh. I admit I cried. Same here. I cried my when I saw Carl Reiner because Carl Reiner had just passed away 
Like, yeah, this, while the, they were releasing this on Quibi, Carl Reiner passed away. And he died three days before, or three days after filming that scene. Yeah, th- this was it's, the last thing he ever filmed. And yeah, when he turns around and looks at Rob Reiner, his own son, and says, as you camera. wish, like, yeah, right into as the camera. You it's like, yeah, it's you, you, you can't help but get a little misty over and, this and the then wonderful it cuts legacy to, of Carl in Reiner. loving memory of Carl Reiner. It's just, it's just yeah. a great moment. So yeah, yeah the, it has all of these really interesting thematic things. It's really fun to watch. Uh, if you ever want to see what Tom Lennon's backyard looks like, now you know. And uh, and yeah, and it has this one like kind of emotional, unexpected emotional gut punch right at the end. So I really, really hope this one survives somewhere. It it has to. I can't imagine. No. I can't. Oh, and let's quickly mentioned that the vertical horizontal the the entire film is shot in vertical aspect ratio um if you turn your phone sideways it would just show you um it would basically the cast list like who is playing what character as originated by this character yeah Uh, yeah, yeah. that was that that was just the technical bit um just to mention a few more performances Mackenzie davis plays buttercup at one point and she looks Uh exactly like robin wright and yeah, it's, yeah, it, yeah, that was that was just kind of funny to see. It's just like, oh, it's this, it's the same person. Um, and then Taika Waititi, who plays Wesley uh, <laughs> towards the end, is amazing. He gets the bit where he's paralyzed and is kind of fallen around, and it's great. And he also mm-hmm. um, does. I, I, he is an artist, and so I, I knew that the, these were him. Is that he did cardboard draw like Sharpie on cardboard drawings of. Um, Inigo Matoya and and Fezzik, which are just mm. put up, which he which he just holds right next to his head, and they're very good drawings. And so, <laughs> major props to and, Taika for for doing that. And I think he even constructed a gigantic cardboard hand to yes. match, like the the gigantic uh, Andre the Giant's up. hand from the original. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that was Taika really was having, one of my Taika favorites. Was yeah, I really love Zoe Deutsch in everything. Uh, I think oh, she's yes, just she's lovely. Did you really see compelling. Buffaloed this year? I did. I saw Buffaloed. I she, was she was great really, in yeah, that. That's, that's like her her big like break like breakout starring role kind of movie, and it's kind of a pity that more people aren't talking about it because she just brings so much energy to that role. Uh, she, and in this one, she doesn't play uh, Buttercup or any of the female roles. She plays Fezzik. Well, she actually and, uh, does play Buttercup. She does play Buttercup oh. um, opposite Paul Rudd in the final bit, but she also plays <gasps> oh, also you know plays You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, hmm. uh, yeah, no. That that was fun. I think that they just put in Fezzik's dialogue over her voice at that point. I couldn't <laughs> just because the audio was a little bit out of sync, and I was like, I think they just put in Fezzik's voice there. But yeah, no. But she's got this great um, costume on and with the horses and. Mm. It's, it was yeah no that was that was that was really fun she's great yeah. there are so many great performances if you'd like to see a list you can head on over to movie babble and just look up home movie the princess bride and i've got a list a, a, a very mm-hmm. thorough list of all the performances look up b peterson's list on movie babble it it's exhaustively researched yeah exhaustive is is the right <laughs> word for it <laughs> And and hold out for when uh, Home Movie The Princess and Bride make, again, makes it out into the world. Uh, just uh, look out again for when this movie finally makes it to whatever uh, whatever format we're going to hear it on. Uh, 
Let's see. Um, I think we only saw two other Quibbies in common. Another one was one that was launched like right near the beginning of the platform, and it this is a weird, weird comedy film because it's semi biographical, but it's still fictional, and it was uh, um, Cody Heller's dummy. Yes. Yeah. We no. there there. There, we've got three more that we both saw in Dummy. Yeah, let's talk about Dummy. Yeah. What is this? Glitter? Are you cheating on me? I have a sex doll. You what? Say! Ah! I'm having like a nervous breakdown. My boyfriend's sex doll is talking to me. But I have news for you, babe. We're all sex dolls until we topple the patriarchy. That's great. You're a feminist sex doll. I think she represents a part of you that wants to heal you. Embrace her. Okay, uh, yeah, Dummy was, uh, yeah, it was written by Cody Heller, uh, uh, who wrote herself into the story. She dated Dan Harmon. Uh, I think they're married the, now. Oh, they're married now. Uh, who is the, the creator of Rick and Morty and Community. Like, he's a, a well-known television personality he has a podcast, uh, from what I understand, where he talks a lot about his own uh, sexual proclivities, and he admitted to owning one of those expensive uh, silicone sex dolls. And the movie Dummy is about how Cody Heller discovers Dan Harmon's sex doll, and while he's out of the room, the sex doll begins talking to her, and only she can hear it. And they begin to have conversations about Dan Harmon, about their relationships with men, and ultimately how they have a lot in common in terms of what they need to express creatively, and they become writing partners. <laughs> it's <laughs> a weird of one. Course, it's a weird one, yeah. And of, and of course, mixed in with that is the complication of trying to move this sex doll around surreptitiously and keep it as your writing partner, Uh while everybody thinks you're essentially going insane. Um, Cody Heller is played by Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick is one of the gamest actresses working. She'll just throw herself into whatever kind of weird role she accepts. And this is the gamest I've seen her be, where she gets to have these screaming matches uh, and very frank, and a lot of really frank sex talk with this talking sex doll. Yeah, no, Anna Kendrick, um, she she's she's great in everything, and in any other hands, this show might not have worked because this is a very very strange show, in that is both a a buddy comedy, but also about a screenwriter, but also literally everything is by definition sex talk, and it's it's a it's a it's a strange show and there are a lot of moments that I was just like I don't think that I will ever see anything like this in any other format ever again that mm-hmm. the 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 there is a romantic presentation of of a fake vagina for the sex doll and it's just like <laughs> as a, almost like a proposal and it's just like what am I watching right now and <laughs> and it's it's great because the sex doll is a really well-written character and has a mm. lot of interesting thoughts and 
And I had a very interesting experience with this show because I didn't know that it was autobiographical because I don't know who Dan Harmon is. I haven't seen Rick and Morty. And until um, Chapter 8, when they encounter someone who has seen Rick and Morty, I, it didn't click for me that this was an actual guy. So all I knew was that this was a writer who was overshadowed by her boyfriend and was basically her only in with people was that her boyfriend was Dan Harmon. And so it wasn't until very late in the show that I realized, oh, this is an actual thing. And suddenly <laughs> I am – by virtue of being introduced to Dan Harmon, Harmon through Cody Heller – I think that that actually made the show even funnier and better to me because I am completely on Cody Heller's side because I don't know who Dan Harmon is. I don't know if his stuff is actually as smart as everyone says he is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, great running gags. Um, Cody Heller's agent keeps changing because they keep getting me tooed. And That's right. <laughs> and And every single time you're just like, yeah, and it's not getting any better because it's still just yet another white guy who doesn't care about what women think, and mm. and it's just and there's lots of bits. There's an episode called uh, the Bechtel test where they basically like, okay, we're going to pass the Bechtel test. This has to be a show that passes the Bechtel test, and they realize mm. that the Bechtel test is really kind of arbitrary and stupid. That <laughs> anyway, there's just a lot of smart stuff, and yeah. and. Yeah, I just I had well, I was put off by some moments. There's one moment in particular involving a young boy that I was like, I don't know if that was okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's the uh, that scene is just real. Like it's meant to be like humor of discomfort, but it is actually is just uncomfortable. Yeah, um, that that moment didn't really work, and there are a couple other moments hmm. where like I'm not sure that worked. But on the whole, this the show really I think was really quite quite fun. Yeah, it's 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 fun and it's really smart too, especially if you know um, the way like screenwriter Twitter uh, talks and the way you know <clears throat> screenwriting advice is passed around. You look at the titles of the episodes and they're things like passive protagonist and subtextual feminism. And uh, Cody is very very sharply aware of the kind of role she feels she needs to play in her own story. And as such, you get this sort of metatextual analysis as to a, a, a female protagonist in a male-dominated field trying to find a unique voice when really all she wants to do is dirty talk and how appropriate or inappropriate that may be politically. And they're talking very openly about that. In the episode where they're talking about the Bechdel test, they start talking about Jesus Christ like the actual Jesus Christ. And they wonder, wait, is this two women having a conversation about a man? Does Christ count? And is the entirety of Christianity misogynist? And yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, we're, we're having this really bizarre kind of raunchy story about a sex doll. And we're talking about the Silicon vaginas and what have you. But at the same time, we're also getting this, kind of flip screenwriting lesson hidden inside of it it's really smartly written yeah and i i think that that maybe quibi could have been single-handedly saved if they had just put out a shirt and marketed it with the quote we're all sex we're all sex dolls until we topple the patriarchy or something like that yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
I would I would have yeah, gotten that, that shirt. I mean, like it, it's so strange, but it's something unique. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like Dummy. So yeah, I think Quibi really could have rolled with this one, sold it a little bit harder than their most dangerous games and their fugitives. Yeah, and yeah, and I think my main takeaway from this is that I am very much a fan of Cody Heller, and I am looking forward to what she does next, regardless yeah, of yeah. who her boyfriend or husband is. Cody Heller has has an interesting mind. I want to see what she comes up with next. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of what's next, what what do you want to talk about? What what's uh, what's what was another one of uh, 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 one of the last quibbies that you were fond of? Um, well, out of the two that we both have in common, I'm not too fond of either of them. Let, why don't we get the one out of the? Well, let's talk about Mapleworth murders. I've written sixty four murder mystery novellas. I think I've got this. But we must allow the police enough time to do their jobs. That's enough time. Let's go. I'm psyched. I love murder. Murder by hand. Let's go solve a murder. Here we go. Um, this show. Okay. (laughs) Did you like this show? This was the. Um, I liked. Um, I liked the the band episodes oh uh, yeah this the, was... the one with the one with andy samberg and my yeah the, the the andy samberg episodes um so this is uh the mableworth murders is created by and stars paula pell as essentially jessica fletcher from murder she wrote she's a horror novel or a, a murder mystery novelist who lives in a really really tiny tiny town called maple uh, or i forgot the name of the town it's but, mapleworth uh, yeah, and she plays Abigail Mapleworth, and she writes these murder mysteries, and the joke is something that fans of Murder, She Wrote were always telling, because Jessica Fletcher lives in this small, little, idyllic town where there just happen to be murders all the time, and she's always there on hand with her murder mystery expertise to help solve them, and one of the jokes of the show is that the local cop, who's played by uh, J.B. Smoove, doesn't uh, doesn't really know how to do police work. They kind of rely on her, even, and they resent her for it. But it's presented in, in this as this really broad comedy, and the premise is uh, Abigail Mapleworth is joined by uh, her, I think it's niece her niece from uh, England. Yeah, her niece from England. Her name is Heidi. She's played by an actress named Haley Magnus. And she's like the young hip one who's always on her phone and they're making all these really awkward jokes about her youth and how she knows how to use telephones. It's like, again, this this is like jokes that wouldn't even played a decade ago, but we're still trying to roll with them. And I think maybe that these were bad dated jokes was the joke. It's kind of hard to tell in a show like this because everything is just so broad and deliberately stupid. It's kind of hard to nail down what they're presenting as stupid and what is just, like, a bad idea. Uh, There were 12 episodes, which was essentially three uh, 30-minute episodes of an ordinary sitcom uh, broken up into three pieces each. So we had a a murderer's beef, uh, which was about a butcher shop. There was a murder that took place at a wine tasting. There was a, a murder that took place at... Uh, like a folk rock concert, and then there was like the the finale episode where everything comes together. Uh, it had a lot of really interesting cameos. Uh, if you're into modern comedy, it's like, oh look, there's 
Annie Mumolo, and there's Ike Barinholtz, and there's Maya Rudolph, and Patton Oswalt plays her agent. Uh, Terry Crews shows up in the last episode, uh, and yeah, um, yeah, in one scene, I'm guessing she was just passing by the set one day, Tina Fey wanders onto the set in the, the wine episode. Like, she's not in the shot with anybody else, she just sort of wanders in, throws off a line that she clearly made up, and then we cut away, and I don't think we ever see Tina Fey or refer to her ever again. Yeah, you're right. She never did come back. <laughs> yeah, like she just has that one little brief cameo. She probably wasn't even in the same state. They just found a building <laughs> that happened to look kind of similar and have her shoot something. So it all feels very off the cuff. It all feels like really improvised, and they're really running with a lot of extremely dumb jokes. Like uh, Paula Pell, one of Paula Pell's uh, shticks is that she can't say the word murder correctly. Murder. She says murder. Uh, has there been a murder? And it, it's it's vaguely amusing the first time, and then the following 50 times, it's just tiresome. It's not 50, actually. I think it was more in the range of about $1 for about once for every dollar that Quibi lost, as in two billion times. <laughs> it was, so it, I, I, oh my word, this show. <laughs> yeah, I, I, find, I find the premise to be a little interesting because that was a, a criticism of Murder, She Wrote, and a lot of these sort of, uh, quote, cozy murders of the cozy murder genre that we hear a lot about. You go to a little cozy town, everything's safe, but then there's a murder, and there are evidently in all of these cozy mysteries enough murders to warrant somebody who's an expert in solving murders, even though they live in a tiny town where crime never happens. So it's sort of playing with that a little bit. Why are there so many murders in one town? Uh, and if there were, what would that town really look like? Unfortunately, the spoof doesn't run with that. Like, they, they don't ever say that maybe the pathologists in the corners and the, and the funeral homes are the biggest businesses in town because everybody's constantly dying here or that there's some sort of uh, really concerted effort by the tourism board to cover up the fact that if you move to this town, you're really, really likely to be murdered. Uh, they don't run with those. They don't take it to sort of these absurd conclusions that they could based off of the spoof of the premise. They just go with like, the easiest, dumbest slapstick gags they can. Yeah, no, this this show, I, I described it, it has the intelligence of something like Blue's Clues, but at the <laughs> same time, it's, it's so determined to be incredibly foul-mouthed and dirty, and it's just mm -hmm. like, what is, who is this for? Because it's certainly not for me. It's just, it's it's an incredibly dumb show, that tries to cover up its stupidity with stupidity and it's and I just I found it so <laughs> unfunny it was so unbearably unfunny with the exception mm -hmm. of the, the 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 band Maya Rudolph and Andy Samberg and Fred Armisen they're fun and specifically mm -hmm. uh, Darcy Carden um, has a small role as like a waitress and her deadpan oh, delivery yeah, yeah. got the one single laugh out of me for the entire thing. I was like, oh, that that was a hilarious deadpan delivery. But other than that, it was just this uh, – uh, since I, – I, it's 
it's iffy on whether or not these are films or shows. I'm counting them as films because I don't care. I like to treat all my media <laughs> equally. But mm-hmm. um, up until up until my uh, foray into Quibi, uh, uh, Mulan, the new Mulan was my least favorite film of the year. Mapleworth Murders sadly has taken that place <laughs> as just this did not need to be this and yet it is this and I must now bear the burden of having seen it and mm-hmm. yeah no this was if, if it had if it had been funny then it would have been fine but it wasn't and it, it was just mm. I I was so glad to get done with this one yeah um th- this one was produced by Lorne Michaels Paula Pell is an SNL grad and this is all of the worst of Saturday Saturday Night Live kind of distilled down into one place. Uh, a lot of the the graduates of Saturday Night Live come from uh, the Groundlings School. Uh, they uh, and the Groundlings School actually had a very specific philosophy when it came to creating like comic characters, and the idea is come up with a character and whatever situation you put that weird character in, it's going to create comedy and. Sometimes that can work. You can create really interesting uh, characters that way. Uh, Pee Wee Herman and Elvira were created out of this uh, this groundling school. Uh, but you look at Saturday Night Live and you begin to realize real fast that you can create a really funny character, but there, the situation has to somehow juxtapose that character. You can't just have a funny character on a blank stage and expect them to be funny. Occasionally you come up with somebody like uh, like Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World. I think they're funny in just about any scenario. Just because you know who they are and how they're going to react to anything. When we're dealing with uh, somebody like Abigail Mapleworth, the idea is she's just sort of broad and funny and says goofy stuff. And has a and lot of really dildos. Ha- yeah, and she own- owns a lot of dildos. Occasionally she talks really, really filthy. Sometimes she doesn't know what sex slang means. She changes to try to create some comedy out of the scenario rather than uh, creating a really strong character and putting her in a, in a situation that would be funny. It's like one third of a good idea that they don't really follow through with. And that's something that's always bugged me about Saturday Night Live and something that bothers me about the Mapleworth murders as well. Yeah, no, this, this I think, is... Was easily easily my least favorite of of mm. any of the of the shows, and it's not because it's like super problematic or anything. It's just bad. <laughs> it's, it's, just <laughs> it's just not just that funny. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, it's just not that funny. It's it's crass for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah, it's just not not worth it. <sighs> so 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 long, Mapleworth murders. I I do not care that you were murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Quibi or mar- Quibi or martyred to Sorn. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, I think the last show that we both have in common is the one that William also got to see, which I I'm mm. kind of I I, I kind of I think I'm going to write a letter just asking William what he thought of this, but it was uh, Die Hard. Welcome to Ron Wilcox Action Star School. I'm Ron Wilcox. Rule number one, you are forbidden from visiting the outside world. You'll stay here. Okay, I get it. Rule 
Rule number two. When you're under this roof, your name is no longer Kevin. Have you ever heard an action star leading man ever called Kevin? I mean, Kevin James and Mark. No, no. Kevin is the name of a punk. Coach Ron is crazy. I'm serious. He's nuts. I want you to storm the house, find the victim, and bring him to safety. A leading man must learn not to sweat the small stuff. What are you talking about the small stuff? I was on fire, Coach Ron. Yeah, um... Again, this, like, dummy is about a real person playing themselves. Uh, or rather, it's about a, a real-life person. But in this case, it's Kevin Hart playing himself. Kevin Hart plays Kevin Hart. He is really, really tired of playing funny cartoon voices and comic sidekicks to Dwayne The Rock Johnson in the premise of this movie. And he has decided to uh, call his agent and say, I'm going to be an action star now. I'm going to be the leading man. I want to do all of the badass fighting and action rescue stuff. The problem is Kevin Hart is a comedian. He doesn't know how to do that. So he has to go to an action school, uh, an action star school, which is run in this remote warehouse out in the middle of the woods. And it's run by a guy named Ron Wilcox, played by John Travolta, who is acting from another dimension. I have yeah. no idea what the hell he's doing in this film. Or what he was uh, on. Yeah, what... what I understand why he agreed to be in it, but I do not understand, like, the choices he's making when he's playing this role. But he plays this guy who runs an action school. Evidently, he taught all of the great action stars in Hollywood to not just perform stunts or handle weapons but also, uh, like, present uh, as really, really confident. Just anything that you know about an action star, this guy teaches you how to do it. It's not so much an acting school as it is sort of like a, a stunt training slash uh, self-help seminar. Uh, and it is wildly inconsistent. Uh, Kevin Hart does his shtick. He kind of screams and flails a lot. John Travolta is doing this really, really weird thing, and we learn eventually that the director who has hired Kevin Hart to be an action star, who's played by Jean Reno, is using these training exercises as a way to get uh, surreptitious verite footage to incorporate in the final film with Kevin Hart not knowing that he's being filmed. Uh... Again, that is a really strange premise. And it could have uh, worked. It could have worked. It, 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 could, it could have worked, I think, if you got a little bit more of a... If, if it were presented as a drama or as an action piece rather than as a broad comedy, then I think it could have worked. Uh, but because it's being presented as a comedy, there's a lot of time taken for Kevin Hart to do a lot of mugging, for John Travolta to just sort of improvise and do goofy stuff. And they're really, really going out of their way to write in jokes. The scenario is the joke. You don't need other, like, weird, surreal jokes on top of that. Uh, so, again, this is a. I'm fascinated by this just because it's such a strange idea, but I, I'm not laughing at it. I don't think it really succeeds as a comedy. I think it exceeds, succeeds more as this weird kind of media deconstruction about Kevin Hart and his own image. Now, if we're talking about Kevin Hart, I wished that they had 
been given a chance for Kevin Hart to address some of the awful things he's said, which they do do in like a few lines of dialogue. Kevin Hart says, I know I've said some really horrible things. I feel horrible about the things I've said. They were like said out of complete ignorance, but they need to go into that more. We can't just sort of have a Kevin Hart comedy where he just mentions it once and then we keep on rolling on. Yeah, um, this 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 film. I was actually kind of intrigued by this because the because of the premise, and I was like, okay, so Kevin Hart is is no longer wanting to be just a comedic sidekick, and he's going to officially try to break out into do something different. And what this film ends up doing is nothing that he hasn't already done. It's he is just yeah. the comedic side piece to himself and the, for some if you're going to an action star school of how to do action filmmaking then I'd like to see some action filmmaking but all of it is really quite amateur and blah and it's like un, 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 uninteresting and he never gets mm. anything beyond comedic material and I was just it was kind of doing the opposite. It was betraying the character of Kevin Hart. And, and I think in that way, kind of also betraying the actor, Kevin Hart is like, hi, we're going to do a film about you not wanting to be a joke, but you're just going to be a joke. And that is the joke. And I think that that was kind of mean to Kevin Hart. I agree that he has said some ignorant things and that maybe they could have addressed that. Um, Though that wasn't really my chief concern. My chief concern is that it took what could have been a very interesting meta commentary of a premise and turned it into a generic, pretty blasé, unfunny, unfunny comedy. And yeah, yeah, and once again, it featured uh, another uh, gang of uh, drug gang that comes in towards the end. And it's a bit more of it has a bit element of commentary because it's revealed that yes they are that that it is part of this verite action that john travolta is or that that john renault is seeking um Mm. but the fact that it is that it just plays in the this this is a thing that is about trying to break out of a stereotype but yet it ends up just being stereotypical and I yeah, I think that's yeah, yeah. that's unfortunate. I think it, there there was a lot of potential with this piece, and I think it kind of just shot itself in the foot by just not trying to do anything mm-hmm. new. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting premise that they weren't smart enough to do anything with. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. it's just unfortunate because I, I I I think that Kevin Hart gets a bad rap with in specific or he he's been typecast as just kind of this yelly guy and i think mm-hmm. there is definitely a potential for him if if he got the got better roles similar to maybe an adam sandler who was known for a long time as just this kind of squealy guy that if if you give him some tr- genuine dramatic material and allow him to work as an as a dramatic actor that you might get something something really surprising and really special but the film wasn't up to the task yeah yeah um well that that covers everything uh, that we watched on quibi uh mutually uh there was of course 
no shortage of material on Quibi. They just loaded that thing up. Yeah, and it uh, wasn't just narrative stuff. There were a lot of documentary series and reality TV series mm-hmm. and just one-off things. Like, they had a daily horoscope type of deal that was that they yeah. had on the service. Um, I watched a few of those daily horoscopes. Um, I, I thought it was going to be, like, this sort of spoof thing. No, it was just a straight-up horoscope. That was it. Oh, just tell okay. your horoscope with little animations. Uh, yeah, it wasn't so... Uh, so broad an idea as that. It was just your daily horoscope. Uh, and they did one for every sign for every day. So it was a lot of content that they were just sort of churning out for these little daily horoscopes that didn't really do or say much. All right. So I have here that I've seen um, looks like uh, six, um, six or seven that uh, you didn't. And you've mm-hmm. seen three that I didn't. So how about if I just talk about two and then we'll hop over and talk about something that you saw? Um, okay. Does uh, that well, work? Yeah, tell me which... Yeah, that works fine. Tell, which one did you like best? Like, uh, you said that Princess Bride was your favorite, but uh, you said you also mentioned uh, Agua Donkeys. I know you saw Royalties, which I really wanted to see. Yeah, so let, well, I'll talk about those two. Um so out of yeah, because uh, home movie was my favorite, and then wireless I think was was uh, the took the best advantage of the platform and had a, a lot of the best ideas and the best presentation. Um, royalties and Agua Donkeys are very very simple shows, and they are very episodic, but they're really really fun. Yeah yeah yeah, I like that. This is the biggest thing we've ever done in our entire lives. Do, do you have any uh, pointers for us? Get out while you're young. Let me get this straight. You wanted to feature every musical genre that has ever been uh, you wanted in one song. Yeah, but keep it simple. These kids have four hits under their belt, and that is a winning streak. <sighs> yeah, real drag to see it in, wouldn't it? This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I'm completely blowing it. Hey, we're blowing it. I really enjoyed Royalties and Agua Donkeys. Um... Royalties uh, was directed by Amy Heckerling, and it was written by Darren Chris and Matt, the uh, uh, writing duo Matt and Nick Lang. And it's about a songwriting duo um, that get their big break when they encounter um, a famous a famous musician at while catering a gig, and they say, "Hey, we've got a great s- the, the, the the this this music star is like I am in love with this hot dog. You you have created the most amazing thing I've ever I've ever tasted." And they're like, "Well, yeah." And we've also wrote a song about it. Would you like that song? And he's like, "Of course." And so every single episode, um, there were ten, is the songwriting duo essentially writing songs for big names about just very random odd subjects be it a hot dog or um comparing the size of one's penis to the size of the penis of of king kong like there's just a bunch of (laughs) a bunch of random stuff and it's them and their agent i I saw that episode oh you did okay yeah i I saw the i saw the song anyway with uh, mark Mark hamill Hamill. singing the king the king kong penis song yeah and um, and their agent trying to get them with the, with uh, music studios, and then their recording their recording guy uh, played by Tony Revolori, who is lovely. I love Tony mm-hmm. Revolori, um, and he is a, he's he's great in this. And the uh, the main the main two played by Kether Donahue and Darren Chris um, are both are both great as this songwriting duo and. Royalties 
is is just a very simple episodic little sitcom about two friends make trying to trying to make art together and that's all it needs to be and it's really fun there are a ton of great uh cameos mark hamill is is one of the definitely one of the highlights but there are a bunch of others um the songs are fun to listen to and always interesting the 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 don the king kong one is definitely is definitely a highlight and they're all and they're in different genres so it it's just it's a very simple show and i just had a lot of fun with it and Mm -hmm. there's really not much more to say about it there's just a lot of chemistry oh towards the end they do have they try to make this manufactured drama of like oh we have to split up because you know of course and he goes back to his old band um that which was led by this woman named polly amorous and she has a bunch (laughs) of bunch of partners and that was that was cute to to get some in like and they're all like it's my turn with polly or whatever it while in bed or whatever and then and it's just it was that was just that was just fun there's just a, a bunch of fun little bits and gags and there's mm-hmm. not much more that you needed in a show and so yeah this one kept me pleasantly entertained similarly agua donkeys um, which is from writer slash director slash star M.P. Cunningham and co-writer co-star Jer Jackson is about two pool cleaners. And that's it. How many times in our lives is our dream girl that we happen to work with going to be single? Never. Except for right now. What are you guys doing? I can't take Jackie on a date. Which one do you want to date her? We both do. How does that work? We like a lot of the same stuff. Dude, if we jump off the roof of the Sleepy Seagull and-, and Jackie sees, Jackie couldn't ignore us then. Not a chance. Hey, Jackie. Hey, Jackie. What? And this is, they're just hanging hanging out, cleaning pools. They hang out, clean pools, and ogle their coworker Jenny. And I I described. Sounds very nineties. It's it is yes. You're right on the money there because I described this <laughs> as what would happen if you took a bunch of extras from Linklater films, you took Jarmusch's aesthetic, you shoved in the dude, and then you just poured a bunch of pool water over that and put it all in a blender. That is what Agua Donkeys is. It's a very Mm -hmm. laid-back, chill, quirky show starring two... They're not stoners, but they might as well be. Just guys (laughs) who just... Slackers. Slackers who just kind of hang out, and they don't make really weird observations like a link later character might they just they're just dumb but it's endearing and i think that it it really surprised me by just how chill and enjoyable this show was and there's a the whole thing is building up it's like we gotta impress jenny um by doing a a double backflip off of the roof of this hotel into the pool and like that's kind of like the thing that the whole show builds towards, and, and <laughs> okay. Meanwhile, there's just a bunch of other side characters that they run into, and and by the end, when everyone's gathered around the pool, I'm suddenly realized that I'm in very invested in what happens here, and I I want them <laughs> to to impress Jenny, and, and <laughs> okay. It's, it's it's stupid and it's might not even be technically good but i just ha- i had a 
I had a blast with it, and and I was, mm. and it was just, it was just a chill show that I think it would be appropriately considered stoner comedy or whatever that you just, you 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 can just sit back and watch it, and it's just fun. Um, mm. The one the one thing I do have though is that it literally it opens with, um, I think Jer needs mouth to mouth resuscitation after trying to hold his breath for too long, and. And it and then it's like he goes in and talks to the woman. Is like, hey, um, I I need this guy needs CPR, but I'm not gay. So if you could just get if you could do it, and she's like, I'll get my husband. No, no, don't get your husband because he's not gay either. And it's it's just a little bit of a it's just a tiny tinge of gay panic in there, which mm. wasn't the greatest way to start off the show. But everything after that, they they proved to just be decent guys. Who, yeah, okay. they probably would have voted for forty-five, but uh, it doesn't really matter by the end. I mean, if if it's a in, in, if it's a comedy about just sort of people conversing and having conversations, that that can work. It doesn't matter if the characters are, you know, relatable or redeemable, so long as they're talking about interesting things. Well, see, conversation is a very very rigid term when it comes to these two. Um, most of their dialogue is kind of like, oh, oh, yeah, hmm. bro. It's that's that's a lot of a lot of the dialogue, but but their facial expressions are great, and they have they they've got the guts to go shirtless pretty much the entire show, and it's just they're just leaving it all out there, and it, it's it worked for me at least. So yeah, mm. royalties and Aguadonkeys were two two very fun little episodic, just casual shows that you can just sit down and enjoy. All right. Okay. So uh, why don't you talk since you since you recently talked about it on Critically Acclaimed? Why don't you talk about uh, Big Red mm. Wolf? Something that Western culture really loves is to think that something is completely a hundred percent good or completely a hundred percent bad. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to talk about Dove. American Apparel has terminated Dove Charney. Everybody in this room has to ask themselves why. Why it's important to talk about this guy who did atrocious things because he also did some really cool things. I admire unhinged behavior. Uh, Big Rad Wolf, uh, this was put together by Vice Media. Uh, this is a documentary about American Apparel. Um, if you don't know American Apparel, they were the hip uh, clothing store of the hip, like the Brooklyn hipster movement in the early 2000s. Uh, they were maybe best known for their really lascivious ad campaigns. Uh, it, it essentially blended, like it showed young, pretty women wearing their clothing, but it was presented in this sort of amateur porn aesthetic, and that was really eye-catching. They were using sex, sex sells, to sell uh, these uh, these pieces of clothing. And more notably, uh, American Apparel decided to, uh, like so many businesses at the time, try to shake up the system by having only sweatshop-free uh, labor practices. Everything was made uh, in in uh, Los Angeles or in, yeah, I think it was all just in Los Angeles. He, uh, the founder of American apparel was a guy named Dov Charney. He was the CEO of the company and 
they ask right at the beginning, why are we going to be talking about Dov Charney? We shouldn't be. This guy is a creep. And indeed, he was taken to court for sexual assault. Uh, all of his uh, and all the cases settled out of court. Uh, he got this stigma put upon him and this uh, because of the crimes he committed or allegedly. And it kind of traces how American Apparel had this big meteoric rise by trying to shake up the system in this early 2000s hipster business model sort of way. And when I say early 2000s hipster business model, I'm talking about deliberately exploiting your workers, asking people to put in way more work than they deserve, get a lot, a lot of like freshly graduated uh, college students who are really eager to make a name in the business and get them to really bust their balls to make sure that they can really, really build up their resume and do something really, really important. Uh, in other words, not pay them for doing a lot of extra work. Uh, it was the the gig mentality really kind of uh, laid bare. This documentary is very specifically about that phenomenon more than it is about Dov Charney or American Apparel. I think this is about that hustle mentality that uh, modern workers have come to adopt, that you have to be working all the time and you have to be hustling all the time. I remember uh, one company got in big trouble at around this time for putting out ads by saying like, you're, you can work for us, but only if you live for the company and you only sleep six hours a night and you have coffee for breakfast and you are going to give everything you want for this company. And that was supposed to be a selling point. You are going to die for us was their selling point about how attractive it was to work for that company. And I think not deliberately, but uh, American Apparel kind of unwittingly very much mainstreamed this work model for the modern age. And they talked to a lot of the people who worked there. They said that Dov Charney was really abusive. He yelled at a lot of people. He had a lot of big ideas, uh, but you know, had to rely on other people to take care of them. And uh, they regret that working for American Apparel was A, actually really exhilarating, and B, did actually look good on the resume, even though they knew this was a really, really unhealthy way of doing things. Uh, I'm glad that Vice Media was the one that put this out, because Vice Media, uh, if you're familiar with Vice Magazine, or any of the other films or TV shows that they've put out, is also really mixed up in that toxic heart of early 2000s Brooklyn hipster culture, and how much... Uh, how much they're responsible for in driving that conversation and driving the tone of hipster language is something they perhaps need to reckon with. And I feel like in making a documentary about American Apparel, it's not just like finding like. I feel like they're trying to pay a little bit of penance for uh, kind of the, the darker aspects of this hipster culture and this work model and this toxic work environment that they are known to have uh, and and kind of deconstruct it a little bit, kind of look at themselves a little bit. Uh, it, it's, it's a really interesting documentary, and uh, it, it's very it, it's in a very different style from some of the other, like, more sensationalist reality shows that you would see on Quibi. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I remember, this is going to date both of us, I remember when I was little... I vaguely have memories of American Apparel. 
because <laughs> um yeah oh, I, oh oh gosh i'm so old i'm so old <laughs> yeah no i was born in 2001 and so i i remember i i don't remember if there were ever like stores or anything but i just remember that name being thrown around a lot and i think i might have probably mm. seen some ads when i was a kid but yeah no i i american apparel is before my time <laughs> oh <laughs> oh man it's been that long um no i i i went into american apparel stores after i was you know well into the working force i was far far out of college by the time american apparel like came to my attention and i started like picking up la weeklies and sort of the the alt rags that were still in circulation at the time and seeing these really uh like borderline inappropriate and sometimes over the line inappropriate uh porny ads on the back page and wondering what is this and why how can they get away with just showing straight up boobs on the back of this magazine uh, so yeah, it was this really fascinating thing that I remember living through, but uh, I also am 105 years old, so You're I need to. Not 105. <laughs> it's just that I'm only 19. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. No. Um. All right. So um, I'm gonna transition from that. Um, you. I'll talk about uh, two shows. Actually, I'll save those for... I'll talk about the two shows that you didn't see, and I'll end with um, two of the shows right. that you did see some of. Um, I'll talk about... Okay. Um, I'll talk about uh, Flipped and Survive. Flipped is um, a comedy uh, from director Ryan Case and writers Damon Jones and Steve Mallory. And it's about this middle-aged white couple in, I believe it's in Southern California, who are, to put it lightly, the worst. Is this it for us? We're destined to be two people with vision living amongst the blind? This is not our destiny, Cricket. What? Whoa, what is this? We're looking for Home Renovation TV's next dynamic duo. It's Demo you know what all this is, right? And you know what we have to do. Uh -huh. Hey, uh, can we be a bit more artful with it? Copy. Now that's what I'm talking about. Um, they are both incredibly <laughs> egotistical, uh, uh, vain... Uh, uh, white people who just believe that they are that they are originals beyond beyond compare that they are that their their taste is inimitable and that no one understands their genius and so what happens is that they they hate these interior designers that are on like an HGTV show in something in mm -hmm. the vein of that and what they do is that they buy a house out in the middle of nowhere and they're going to renovate it so that they can audition for their own show and the house they buy is completely out in the middle of the desert near the Mexico border and it's full of drug money and what do they do? They take the drug money and they use it to finance their own show and the remodel of the house and after, mm -hmm. and when they finish doing that um, the cartel shows up and they're like you know what? Normally, we would kill you, 
but I love your interior designing, and could you redo <laughs> my house? And so they become these captive, they these captive mm-hmm. interior designers, these captive renovators of the cartel homes, and and maybe that could have worked, but unfortunately, our leads are incredibly racist, sexist people, mm. and it's just so unlikable. Uh, I I had a hard time getting through this one. Um, the the leads they're they're fine. Um, they're given very unfortunate material, and and the show doesn't really do anything to. It never they never get their comeuppance. I mean, technically they might, mm. but it's really just they're continued to allow. They're they're allowed to just exist as these generally terrible people and that and we're supposed to think that they're funny but they're not and they're just mean people and hmm. there there are some fun bits um the the one of the top drug lords is played by Andy Garcia and he's He's having a fun time. Um, he's secretly a very big fan of music, and he wants to be a music star. And um, I'm trying to um, remember the name of the leads. Uh, Will Forte is also very much into music, and so they become this very approaching queer relationship where they just love singing together. And, of course, that gets the wife to be all very uh what are you doing with this man and this in this gay panic and it's just Caitlin uh, mm-hmm. K- K- it's just it's just annoying to watch and one of the most just because the film is so comfortable with all of the stereotypes that are associated with um with latinx people and with the drug cartels and I found this to be interesting. Have you did, have you ever seen the show Barry, with Bill Hader, the the Bill? No, Hader I haven't. And yeah. Um, so sadly, apart from Quibi, I'm not up on my modern TV, <laughs> which should say a lot about the way I view popular culture. But there you go. Yeah. No, it's that 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 perfectly fits you. But um, there's a the <laughs> one of the main characters in Barry is uh, I think the actor's name. Anthony Kerrigan um, mm-hmm. and he's very good in the show but he's, he plays this uh, I think he's Ukrainian gangster type and the thing is, is he's very effeminate but he's not gay That's there's never really any, any exploration of that but he's just this kind of effeminate cheery oh hello kind of guy oh yes you're very da 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 but at the same time he'll just casually kill people and that's and it's and it's a funny character and I think that it works well in Barry it seems that that has become a new uh, stereotypical gangster type because that is one of the main characters of Flipped is that there is a, basically a no-ho Hank character in here and he's just like, oh yes, mm-hmm. ah, da 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 da, kind of effeminate, and that we're sp- supposed to kind of laugh at his, the way he's like not that masculine, um, mm. and yeah, I just I found Flip to be to be to be just annoying, annoying and unlikable is really the best way to put uh, it. Um, that's too bad. Yeah, it was nominated for some Emmys. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> I guess they, uh, Quibi really did kind of corner the market on 
I think it was like short form uh, television series or limited series. Um, they got a bunch of Emmy nominations just because they suddenly flooded the market with all of this material and so stuff like Most Dangerous Game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Free Ray Sean, which is the other one I was going to talk about here. Um, Free Ray Sean is a film that was directed by Seath Mann and it was from writer Mark Marino and it's about a young black man uh, who was, uh, I believe, an Afghan veteran. He was a veteran in the Afghan war. And mm-hmm. he has been accused of police of accused by police of I believe it's uh, buying a gun illegally, and he's chased down, and he's bar- and he barricades himself in his apartment with his wife and son, and the and the police basically set it up as a hostage situation. I'm in here with my wife and my five-year-old son. Police sent me up. And now they're trying to kill me. What's your name? Lieutenant Stephen Boynton. You're in a bad spot. Came up here to try and help you with that. I was made in America. You do come out on your own. SWAT's bringing your ass out in a body bag. And basically from there, it's kind of like The Fugitive, and it's where some police are um, interrogating whether this guy is actually guilty, and some of them are just dead set that he is guilty. Um, And it becomes a a very... It's a a thriller, a tension, over-the-phone thing where Lawrence Fishburne plays a cop who... uh, The good cop as it were, that is on the mm. phone with him, talking with him, even though he has no experience in hostage uh, uh, hostage situations. And it's a commentary on um, how people use social media to document police brutality, and it's talking about police brutality and all of these things. And I'm really, really torn on this show because on the one hand, it's very finely presented and the performances, I think the overall cast of this is the best of any show that I managed to see. Uh, Stefan James plays, plays the lead. Um, he play, was the one of the co-leads in If Beale Street Could Talk, and he was amazing there. Mm. And he played John Lewis in Selma, and he was also in Race, yeah, yeah. the Jesse Owens pick, which you mentioned earlier. And he's mm-hmm. very, very good in this. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, who I like to say that I know from School Days, the Spike Lee musical. Um, he's really great. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's really, he's really, really good in this. And uh, and then Jasmine Safus Jones, um, both Fishburne and Jones won an Emmy for their performances in this, and I think deservedly so because there are performances are great. Jasmine Safus Jones was in Blind Spotting, which is one of my favorite. Uh, favorite films from 2018. That movie is is just yeah, yeah, outstanding. Sure. The writing of that it's film excellent. is outstanding, and the performances are great. And they are addressing some very good issues, and it's technically very well presented. And so, really, for a lot of this movie, I'm like, this is probably definitely going to be up towards my favorite films of the Quibi films. And then, in the final two minutes this film reveals itself to be 
incredibly backwards because the ultimate message Ooh. of this film is after the situation ends, and I won't say how, but you can probably guess how, um, mm-hmm. as in not well, um, hmm. in that basically the message is, is Lawrence Fishburne is just sitting there and he's angry, and then his son comes up to him and, and he, he throws away his badge. I'm just going to spoil the ending because it really is it really is the crux of why I, I have an issue with this film is that after everything, his son comes up to him and gives him his badge and is like, no, you have to be there for the rest of us. And the, the film is essentially saying that the solution to p- police brutality, that the hope is in good black cops. And that is mm. just wrong because... I think a, a fi- another, well, we, another film from 2018, Monsters and Men, I think addressed this issue really well, is that this, it's not the people, it's the system that is the problem. And yeah, this film yeah. really just puts the blame on a few bad white cops. And yeah, That was the theme of uh, something that came up in The Hate You Give as well, if you saw that movie. Yeah, um, with Common's character. What, uh, Exactly, you know, the, in in that movie, Common's character, he plays a cop and he is questioned. You know, if if you saw a rich white guy doing the same thing you see a poor black boy doing, would you treat them the same way? And he admits, no, I would not. That he's part of this racist system, and we're we just are, you know, we're in the year twenty twenty right now. We've had the uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, really gained a lot of voice over the course of this year, and. A lot of this idea of rethinking the entire uh, policing department and the necessity of a policing department has already surpassed the conversation that I think hashtag free Rayshawn is trying to have. Yeah, no, it was just it was just really unfortunate in that those last few moments that it that really it it betrayed its characters and betrayed. Mm betrayed us and i think it's yeah it, it came out and it got a lot of attention i think because of its subject matter and yeah i i i think it's funny how a lot of people are like oh, racism who knew who knew right guys and it's like when just two years ago green book won over black Klansmen and blind spotting and the hate you give and if beale street could talk and monsters and men and sorry to bother you and all of these films that were addressing these stuff and you can go back further and further and there are these the issues have been dealt with in much better ways than i think free ray sean does and it mm. was free ray sean was written by a white man mark marino and while his intentions were i'm sure for the for good intentions um i think well to quote tanahisi quote Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, good intentions is the hall pass through history that ensures the American yeah. dream. And mm-hmm. and it's just, I, I, I can't really forgive it. And so, despite it has so many strong elements, specifically the performances are really, really good. And a lot of the writing is, is very strong in the conversations themselves. I think ultimately this film is mm. is... is the pro the, it's problematic element in its in its ultimate message i think betrays betrays the film and the people who who it's trying to trying to give voice to yeah yeah um we, we've been going on for a long time about quibi this is like the uh the opposite of what quibi did so um i'm, I'm just gonna wrap up uh, well i'm not gonna wrap up but i'm gonna cover uh something that is way less substantive very quickly 
Okay. Uh, just because this is a this is a really strange idea. It's a really strange idea. In fact, uh, if you're familiar with a movie from the 80s called Stay Tuned about how uh, John Ritter starts getting TV signals essentially from hell and he starts seeing TV shows that are being broadcast out of hell, uh, that's where Murder House Flip lives. Okay. This man killed his wife right here where my husband is sitting. It's almost impossible to believe what happened here. This is where all the murders took place. Correct. To afford to live by the beach, we had to buy a house where a guy chopped his wife up. Murder and makeover don't usually go together. But this isn't just about design. We need to give this place new life and energy. Are you trying to tell me that we'll find body parts? As a distinct possibility, yeah. Because Murder House Flip is a reality show about a pair of interior designers uh, played by Joel, or they are, the interior designers are Joel Uziel and uh, uh, Michael Welch, and they go to houses where people are still living where notorious local murders took place. And every show begins with this really kind of, like, dark, current affair, like, black and white footage in, like, 20 years ago. These people were brutally murdered and slaughtered and ripped apart in this really graphic way in the bathtub of this house. And every home deserves a second chance. (laughs) And they bring... And they bring in these interior designers to go into these houses known for being murder sites and sprucing them up a little bit. And you can tell that they are both incredibly uncomfortable to be in murder houses. The people who live there, they know. Uh, there's there's a California statute that, uh, I'm not, and I'm not sure if this is nationwide, where uh, if a, a serious crime took place in a house, the realtors have to tell you. They have to tell you, okay... We're going to sell you this house, but just so you know, people were killed in this room. And if you're if you're comfortable with that, then you can buy the house. Uh, and so the people who live there know that there's there have been murders there. And there's this weird kind of metaphysic at work where they say, well, murders happened here. So now these are really gloomy places. And in some cases, they are really gloomy places. And so what they have to do is, like, open up the windows and make sure new energy comes in. They, they talk a lot about energy on this show and how interior design can change the energy in a room um that's all very abstract i don't know a lot about interior design i can say that when they redesign these houses they look really really boring uh they just look like something out of a catalog everything's off the shelf there's no personality in it they decorate the interior of the home when really shouldn't that be the family's job to choose their own things and the things they like and are comfortable with instead of just these sort of general real estate catalog looks. But that's as maybe. Maybe that's what interior design is supposed to be about. Maybe you're supposed to rest your aesthetic over to these people who seem to know better. Uh, But at the same time, there's this weird cloud of darkness hanging over this really kind of shallow trifling show about, you know, choosing sconces and wall panels and mirrors uh, in, in that people are have been murdered here. And they never really 
Uh, I feel like there's a, a fictional version of this where they could have really played with it, like a Blumhouse movie. It's like every murder home deserves a second chance. And every time they're fixing something up, like an evil spirit will appear behind them. They say, oh, okay, we know how to get rid of evil spirits. We just have to get a priest in here. Oh, we lost another priest. Can you go <laughs> get to local Catholic? Yeah, get get a couple more priests because this one's going to kill just a few more. Like they could really have made something darkly humorous out of it. But instead, it's played totally, totally straight. And it's so bizarre. It is just such a strange idea that we're going to go to these places of death and tragedy and turn it into a house-flipping show. Uh, One of the murders in question uh, was uh, the child actor who appeared uh, as the main character in All Dogs Go to Heaven, a film that William and I reviewed recently on Critically Acclaimed. Uh, She she and her mother were brutally murdered by her father. And uh, there was a really notorious case at the time... That's one of the houses that gets flipped. (coughs) Excuse me. So, uh, yeah, you got a little bit of, like, dark Hollywood history folded into this weirdly lighthearted design program. This is not one I would want to rewatch, but I'm so glad I did, just because I don't think I'm ever going to see something quite this strange again. All right. Um, Okay, yeah, we're... I'll I'll quickly uh, jump. I'll do uh, one more, and then um, and then why don't we talk about and then we might talk about the two that uh, you did see some of. I'm going to talk about survive. Okay. Welcome to Lifehouse, a home for the sad and the suffering. Jane, anything you'd like to share before you fly home? No, I'm good. But the pain will bury you. Hey, I'm Paul. It's never going away. So when I get on that plane at night, I'll never arrive home. Jane? We can't stay here. We have to calm down. Just go. No, no. We're here together. Okay. Which is from director Mike okay. Pellington and Richard Abate and Jeremy <laughs> Ungar. And it stars Sophie Turner mm. as a woman uh, with who is uh, suicidal, and she has been in a mental health facility for about a year um, since attempting suicide. And she is going home for Christmas, and she plans to kill herself on the plane home. And Ooh. yeah, and she and on the. And while on the plane uh, in the airport, she meets up with uh, with a guy, and who is played by Corey Hawkins, uh, who was in Black Klansman, and he was great in Black Klansman. Um, and and she, and what happens? She goes to the bathroom to kill herself, and the plane crashes in the mountains. And so now suddenly this suicidal woman is now forced to try and survive and through this traumatic experience will learn to, 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 to value life. And this show was just so melodramatic and frankly a little offensive. Um, the first two episodes are romanticized suicidal ideation to such a, such a degree that I just about stopped watching the show just entirely out of, 
my own well-being because suicidal ideation is something that I struggle with. And the the way mm-hmm. that Sophie Turner's narration just almost is like, yes, I can't wait to just sink into that. And it was just like, come on, are you? do you know what you're saying and how this... And it's just, it was really, it was really quite, quite irresponsible. And then... Mm-hmm. But then after the plane crashes, um, that pretty much goes by the wayside and it becomes a survival story and it becomes a very cliche, rote, every, nothing you've never seen before uh, survival story. And and yeah, there's not really much to say about it. Sophie Turner is good. Corey Hawkins is good. They are the lone two survivors of, of the plane crash. And, and yeah, there's not really much to say other than that it's just kind of kind of formulaic it's not blatantly terrible but <laughs> but it's it's formulaic All and right. kind of boring and the ending is 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 kind again i should say kind of a, a it's it this i found that quibi doesn't really know how to deal with mental health a lot of the time and in, in a mm. lot of well that's shows. that's true of a lot of shows in general entertainment yeah. yeah but yeah the ending was just kind of oh yes i've discovered my I value life now because this man who was so had so much to live for uh, uh, sacrificed himself for me. Like it's the same thing with with the with the stranger of of someone of uh, well a, a man of color sacrificing themselves for for mm-hmm. her. And it just yeah, there, there not a lot to it. And the first two episodes are an extreme trigger warning for those who might who who might struggle with suicidal ideation um mm-hmm. you saw some of both um when the street lights go on and don't look deeper so how much did you yeah, see of those? um i only saw like the first uh three or four episodes of each unfortunately okay. so i can only comment on what i saw and if we're to see these as films i think it's a little inappropriate for me to try to like review them. I can only comment on what I saw. Uh, so these are not reviews. These are just sort of. I'm just curious to bits of things yeah. I caught. I, I managed. I was curious enough, and I managed to catch them. I would have watched more, but my Quibi was heartlessly wrenched away from me. <sighs> Quibi. Uh, <clears throat> now, when the street light go, street lights go on, is um, what I saw it takes place in the mid '90s, and it's about uh, a how a town reacts to a local scandalous murder. A local teacher was having an affair with one of his students. They were going to run off together when a killer hauled them both out of a car at night and killed them out in the woods. And how I think it's how the, the town reacts to the killer and also the scandal. And it has a very sort of Stephen King vibe, even though it's set in the nineties. And uh, Don't Look Deeper, which unfortunately has a really nondescript title. I hate that. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's about about androids. They need to put some robot thing in the title. I was a teenage robot. But yeah, it's about a a young girl. She breaks up with her boyfriend. She's also in high school. And she uh, uh, learns uh, after suffering an accident at a party that she actually has like wires and gears inside her body and learns that she is herself a robot. Uh, but I didn't get any further than that. I don't know where the story goes. Uh, but it seemed to be like really kind of moody, and I liked the casual look of the tech. That's all I can really co- comment on. All right. Yeah. So for when the streetlights go 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 on, which is uh, directed by Rebecca Thomas, and it's from writers Chris Hutton and Eddie O'Keefe. Um, it's a it's a 
decent show, I'd say. It's very straightforward. It's uh, maybe that's its biggest uh, uh, hindrance is that it is just very, very straightforward mm-hmm. and earnest and uh, 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 not full of itself, but just kind of it. It never really uh, uh, goes for anything. Uh, it's not very self-aware, I guess. And mm-hmm. it's it's a decent story. A decent mystery. Uh, there are. It's not really a mystery. More of just a drama about how these people react, um, and the characters. The characters are good. The performances are good. Uh, Chosen Jacobs, Sophie Thatcher, and Sam Strike in particular. I really enjoyed their performances. Um, mm-hmm. It's. It. Yeah. It's. It's. It's comfortably '90s. Tony Hale's in there. Um, it's there's not a ton to talk about uh with it but it's it was a decent it was a decent film it doesn't really exceed expectations but i don't think it was really going for that and i think that it did accomplish what it set out to do which was explore mm-hmm. some characters going through a coming of age period and i think it it did that well and good good for rebecca thomas um with don't look deeper i didn't like this one um it it Specifically, um, in the opening, in the in that in that accident that she has, um, there is a lot of self harm imagery in this in this show, and that yeah. that really uh, 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 put me off. Um, I get that it was like yes, it was she's an android or whatever, but just the way that like she would just like take a knife and tear into her arms was just really kind of off putting for me personally, mm-hmm. um, and in that way it's just kind of like almost relishing in that imagery was it's I just felt like there should have been well there 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 were were, I should say there were warnings um, in front of the episodes to survive where like if you uh, struggle with mental health here are some resources it didn't have that for Mm -hmm. don't look deeper which I think it might have it could have used Um, but ultimately what don't look deeper reveals itself to be is a queer narrative which I found surprising. Okay. There is a trans character who plays kind of like this uh, uh, hitman. He's like the there's this tech mogul who's created these androids, and it's I think is like his brother um, who's a trans man and kind of goes after goes after our main character to try like shut mm-hmm. her down or whatever because she's gone gone rogue and. Mm-hmm. And the main character herself ultimately reveals that she is also queer, and I think that there was a lot of potential. I think that the, uh, Catherine Hardwick was trying to explore some queer stuff, but I think they actually mishandled the trans character, um, okay. unfortunately, in that it it it's almost like uh, uh, something that's like gets like lorded over is like that androids not. It, it it takes the you're not human aspect and almost compares that to the trans person's Ooh. experience. It's 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 not it's not blatantly offensive. It's not outright just like, oh okay. my word, I can't believe you did that. It just it felt a little mishandled and I and um so I would say that that yes, the the actor is a trans actor, which was nice to see. Um, he was he was really good, but I think the material was just it wasn't really quite it didn't quite nail it and and the queerness aspect of it I, it just kind of became it's just an unfortunate 
awkward film mm. i think ultimately with that had a lot of good intentions and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'd say that support all the cast members of this, except for Emily Mortimer and Don Cheadle, who are doing a really weird thing in this that I don't really understand. Um, their characters weren't written well, and they don't really pull, make elevate the material in any way. Um, but yeah, the, mm-hmm. all the kids in this and and the and the trans actor. Um, let's see here. Look deeper is played <laughs> played by Harvey Zelinsky. Um, so I would, yeah, so support the cast, but ultimately I, I don't definitely skip this film, especially if you, okay. if self images of self harm or, or if, if that turns you off or maybe some mishandling of, of a trans character, which does happen. So yeah, this yeah, one, okay. this one was an unfortunate misfire. Um, so I think that only so, leaves the anthology series that you saw. Oh, which which is I didn't even see all of, but I knew that Sam Raimi was behind Fifty States of Fright, and I think it's a really great idea. Fifty States of Fright we couldn't even talk about on Council too soon because technically it's the Quibi show that lasted two seasons. That's right. Yeah, there was actually <clears throat> they finished their production calendar and then they started up another one. And I only watched the first two states. I watched, uh, uh, it was Michigan, which is uh, Sam Raimi's home state. And also, uh, was it, I think it was uh, uh, Minnesota. Okay. Uh, But the idea was there was going to be uh, an episode for every state in the United States. There were going to be 50 episodes, and each one was going to have a different horror uh, story, like an anthology horror story. And Sam Raimi wrote and directed the first one that was set in Michigan. And it's it's an old kind of ghost story about the wife of a, a lumberjack who loses her arm in a lumberjack accident. Uh, he uses all of his money uh, that he's earned over his life to make her a golden arm because she is incredibly vain. She wants to be the prettiest woman in town. Uh, they put on the golden arm and the gold like infects her blood and kills her. He ends up having to dig the arm out of her grave to sell it so he can survive. And wouldn't you know it, she comes back from the grave to get it. I read something like that in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark when I was a little kid. It's a really predictable story. It's told in mellow Sam Raimi style. Because, you know, Sam Raimi's not doing the same kind of whirling weird stuff that he did when uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, it's just a pretty good ghost story. Uh, I wish I could have seen more. I wish I could have seen all 50 States of Fright. I think that's a really good idea. And I think that's some, that's well suited for something like Quibi. Um, but yeah, that's that's all I managed to see on Quibi. And that's a lot because we've been talking for like over two hours yeah. about what we saw on Quibi. Uh, so maybe we'll split this one up into to a couple different episodes. Maybe not. Maybe we'll have just one big marathon. Yeah, but my uh, question is, is, uh, is um, I just have a quick question, hmm. is um, since William's laptop... Uh, died, mm. but there were some pre-recorded episodes. Was one of the episodes that he has yet to get off of the computer? Was it your cancel too soon episode on uh, Briscoe County Junior? 
No, that, hadn't we haven't that recorded yet? that one yet. Okay. As, as of this recording, we haven't talked about Briscoe County Jr. yet. Uh, William is is uh, just trying to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I finished watching the show. I'm ready to go, and we're just... I, I can put this all on William. I'm just going to call him out right here. Okay, because I just think that this <laughs> uh, is hilarious that we may have yet more episodes of Cancel Too Soon before the epi- before your big 200 episode. Before we get... Before, yeah, this will so be the, like, what, six-sevenths like uh, or something? At this point, uh, whatever it is, this, this, we'll just call this one like bonus number one before we get to actual <laughs> two hundred, or uh, you know may, maybe we'll play with the numbering a little bit in in some other way. But uh, maybe we'll call, we'll release this one, call it two hundred and one, and then go back and do two hundred. Uh, but uh, I want to thank you, B. Peterson. Uh, did you have any uh, final thoughts on like Quibi in general before we go? Um, just, just a quick couple. I think that this was a very promising service. I think it was really interesting that like almost half of the films that I saw were directed by women out of the gate that they were definitely Mm -hmm. like the, one of the shows that they were promoting was, uh, was like a, a gay game show. I didn't really see any of it or whatever, but just like that Mm. it seemed to be a very almost forward thinking though, as evidence by the shows themselves maybe not the execution wasn't great all the time but that there was a lot of really good ideas here and that launching a short form platform um, intended for commuters during a pandemic was really an unfortunate Mm. thing that happened and that yeah yeah, there's a lot of potential here it would have been cool to see more shows that played with the form like wireless to see more home movies um, that that all would have been nice, but yeah, I think that it's it's a tragedy that these films are unavailable for the time being. Hopefully, someday they will reappear somewhere. Hopefully, in the form of a Criterion box set. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, uh, thank you for uh, for talking about all this Quibi with me. Uh, Quibi, I, yeah, like I've said, I was the one who was really skeptical but then i actually tried it and found this really fascinating format and i've said this before it's i think it was just ahead of its time i think it was the victim of bad timing and maybe a a conversation that started around it about how uh how, how it was a bad idea sight unseen when in fact it was a really interesting idea and i think if more people had given it a chance maybe there would be more quibby but as we talk about this now, Quibi is is on its knees about to be executed, uh, which is really, really, really horrible for uh, everything that's on it because we don't know where it's going to go. Um, but yeah, now, now you know what our take on Quibi has been. Uh, I hope it has at least piqued your interest and now you have like a, a store of information you can go back to, dear listeners. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you? Um, people can find me um, on Twitter and on Letterboxd at Blue Gray Closet. I am writing for Movie Babble, as I've said. Um, I'm doing a weekly um, article series on the films of Agnes Varda. That's been really fun. Um, in addition to mm-hmm. movie reviews um, and and my two gigantic 25 to 2800 word pieces on Quibi. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I just, I'm, I'm, I am in those places. I talk pretty much exclusively about film in those places. And, uh, and I am very thankful for you bringing me on here. I've now been on two shows, mm-hmm. you're critically acclaimed and canceled too soon. And I only have 50,000 more shows to guest host so that I can say that I guest hosted <laughs> all of your shows. Uh, anyway so yeah thank you 
thank you very much, um, Whitney, and uh, for this. And I look forward to everything else that you've guys got coming up. I'm really glad that everything that happened with William's laptop worked out the way it did because that that was that was yeah, a really cool yeah. thing to see that everyone chip in to help him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, William's laptop died, and uh, we we put it out to uh, to Twitter, and a, a lot of people just rallied and were really really kind. And William has said he felt feels like George Bailey at the end of It's a Wonderful Life because so many people helped out. Uh, but yeah, we're we're gonna get back on our feet really soon, and in the meantime, we have uh, nearly two and a half hours to talk about Quibi. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for joining me, and uh, that's a wrap, folks. We'll see you next season. Thank you.